Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Owens Corning of New England, helping homeowners create living space using the Owens Corning basement finishing system for over 20 years. More information at ocboston.com. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, Governor Charlie Baker has told allies he's not running for a third term. We'll open and end the show getting your thoughts on this breaking news. Are you happy? Time for somebody else? You missed? You're a big Baker fan and you can't get enough of the former Swampscott selectman? You want to know what you make of the news and who you're hoping might replace him? That's ahead first on Boston Public Radio. I'm Jared Bowen, in for Jim Browdy. Then, as the Supreme Court weighs the future of Roe v. Wade, OBGYN Dr. Cheryl Hamlin is on rotation at the last operating abortion clinic in Mississippi, the one currently at the center of this latest and pivotal SCOTUS case. She'll give us the details on what it's like on the ground at Jackson Women's Health and what women around the country stand to lose as the court considers the legality of abortions after 15 weeks. All that and more ahead on Boston Public Radio. Egan, Jared Bowen, Executive Arts Editor here at GBH, is in for Jim Browdy, who's got the day off. Good morning. Good morning, Marjorie. Big news day. Well, this is very upsetting to Jim. He picked the wrong day to be off (laughs) (laughs) because we start today with massive Massachusetts political news. As you just heard on our news, that Governor Charlie Baker has announced he will not run for re-election to a third term. This opens the race Open, this opens, opens a raise really wide, obviously, improving the chance for Democrats to retake the corner office. Uh, State Senator Sonia Chang Diaz, perhaps the most progressive Democrat already announced, along with former Massachusetts State Senator Ben Downing, who's pitching himself as something of a climate candidate. And there's also Harvard Professor Danielle Allen. There are rumors as well that Attorney General Maura Healey, with Charlie Baker out of the picture, will jump jump in for the Democrats. For Republicans, Jeff Deal is running with the backing of former President Donald Trump, who did not, of course, perform very well in the state of Massachusetts. So we're going to talk about this a little bit at the top of the hour. We're going to talk about it again longer at the end of the hour. But right now, we're going to take your calls at 877-301-8970, BPR wgbh.org is the email, or you can tweet us at Boss Public Radio. What do you think? Will you miss Charlie Baker? Are you ready for somebody else to come in and take his place? If you are, who would you like to take his place? What do you think of the high points and low points of Charlie Baker's administration? He has been, of course, throughout his term, one of the most popular governors in the whole state of Massachusetts, more popular among Democrats and independents than among the Republicans in this state. Uh, So maybe you're a Democrat or Republican that liked him, social liberal, uh, fiscal conservative, not quite as conservative as Bill Wells, his mentor. He worked for Bill Wells for years, another social liberal, uh, fiscal conservative Democrat. But what do you think about the departure of Charlie Baker? I'm kind of surprised. I thought he was going to run again for a third term. Well, you know, I, I think that's I think most people who knew the situation and a lot of people who knew him had no idea which way this was going, because I think if we knew one thing about the governor is that he loves governing. He doesn't necessarily love the ornamentation of the office and the ceremony that comes from it. In fact, one of the first things that he did when he became governor was move out of the very ornate governor's typical governor's office yes. into a much smaller space where he could just literally roll up his sleeves and do the work. And so for that reason, I think a lot of people thought he would just
just continue on. However, these last couple of years have obviously been very, very difficult. Anybody in a leadership position is re-examining being in a leadership position. Have they done all they can do to get whatever they're leading, whomever they're leading through this pandemic and find it's time to sit down? And I think that's what we're seeing from the governor. The third paragraph of his statement says that we are acutely aware, he being uh, himself and the lieutenant governor, excuse me, uh, they're aware more than ever before about how little we can take for granted when it comes to our family, our friends, our time on this planet. We also know the governor can be emotional at times, talking about his father, talking about his friends. And so he's he's very attuned to what life means and so obviously considered this deeply with his family over the weekend. Well, you're talking about <clears throat> getting older. Uh, he was just in here with Jim and me the other day, and we asked him about having just turned 65 years old. And here's what Governor Charlie Baker had to say about the momentous 65th birthday. Everybody's supposed to be retired at 65. That's not happening. The boomers are refusing to retire. I no, that was an, I thought that was kind of an interesting story. The, um, I, uh, Globe piece this weekend for people. Yeah. Like, right. I, yep. I, I, um, I've always said that, you know, I'm one of these people who's going to want to be purposeful and productive. And he was referencing the fact that he is 65. And as he said, as you just referenced in a statement, he's thinking, I think a lot of people during the pandemic have thought about, well, gee, <laughs> you know, there may be things I want to do. Charlie Baker, you may know, ran Harvard Community Health uh, before he ran for governor against Deval Patrick and lost the first time around in 2010. But Harvard Health was teetering on the brink uh, financially, and he brought it back around. And before that, he worked in the uh, Bill Weld administration um, uh, as and did an incredible job in a lot of areas in the Weld administration, including the Department of Children and Families, which is a really difficult place to deal with because people's problems are so tremendous. Um, but he had a lot of money to their budget this time as the governor, and he also brought down uh, caseloads there. I think the big uh, uh, criticism, the big uh, dark mark on Governor Baker's term will be the Holyoke Soldiers Home, uh, where there were so many uh, people died up there. I think the number was 76 veterans. And uh, it was reported by the Boston Globe and other people that uh, Charlie Baker put a political appointee in charge of the Soldiers Home. And even though criminal charges have been dismissed against that political appointee, it was clear that the guy who ran the place um, – wasn't doing as good a job as he should have. So there are other black marks, but there are other, you know, the thing about Charlie Baker in Massachusetts is that he is a um, more con fiscally conservative than, than a Democrat, um, but he's an honest guy. And I think in Massachusetts, where we've had so much corruption uh, and so many speakers of the Democrats, uh, the Democratic House in trouble and indicted and, you know, convicted, um, and a lot of shenanigans up in Beacon Hill. Uh, he's, I, I, I think, an honest guy, very smart guy, and as someone who's been a reporter my whole life, and I was a reporter when he was running with Bill Weld, he was an unusually honest guy for a guy uh, that's a politician in the state of Massachusetts. So anyway, 877-301-8970 is the number, BPR at WGBH.org is the email, and you can tweet us at Boss Public Radio. Robert from Hull, what do you think? Hi, Robert, are you there? Hi. Oh, oh, yes, this is Robert and Lowell, not Hull. Oh, I'm sorry, Robert. Robert and Lowell. So what are your thoughts okay. on the governor's decision? Anyway, uh, first of all, Marjorie, as you opened with, uh, I'm surprised Jim just didn't come in. I know. It's uh, unbelievable, Robert. <laughs> and I, was I was listening the other day, and, I mean, if someone couldn't, can't get a scoop, it might be 
Jim, it might be Jim. That was hours before the government the governor made his announcement, and Jim couldn't get it out of him. So anyway, <laughs> I'd love to razz him, but uh, so anyway, he'll be back tomorrow, I, Robert. You can call again. <laughs> I will, but anyway, uh, I just uh, I hope that we're going to maybe see some some new candidates. I I am a Democrat, a strong Democrat that voted for Charlie Baker. I do like him. You can't listen to your interviews on the radio with him and not really uh, come away admiring many, many things about him. So I would like to see um, some candidates emerge, probably Democrats, but with sort of common sense, fiscal sanity, strong management perspective versus, um, you know, more of a theoretical type person. I think Mara Healy is a pretty good attorney general, but I don't know if I see her on managing the... I'm sitting on, by the way, the the purple line up here in Lowell. I need to go to Boston. I don't know if I see her addressing things like the MBTA, the state, uh, the state police handle. Even Charlie came up with a short on these things. In my, in hey, my Robert, book. we don't have a great connection, probably because you're on the train. So um, thank you for the call. More Healy, as you mentioned, I think is obviously the person that people see as the Democratic side as being the front runner. She's got huge popularity in the state. She's got huge uh, name recognition. Well, also, campaigning has changed considerably since when Charlie Baker became governor of Massachusetts. It changed, uh, obviously, with the Trump administration, and this would be very different for him. He'd face a stiff challenge within his own party in terms of the press that he'd have to face uh, as Republicans here in Massachusetts are dissatisfied with him. And then, yes, there would be already three strong contenders rising on the Democratic side. That's without even more Healy entering the race. So this would be a very different time. He cites that too in his statement, saying that this is a time that should be devoted to getting through the rest of the pandemic, which he said could be an even more difficult time than last year, and wants that time to be devoted to that rather than campaigning, which most politicians will tell you they don't really like, and I think Charlie Baker didn't like it very much uh, as well. Well, you know, he said that in his statement that one of the things he hopes people will remember about him is that uh, he showed that you can uh, work across party lines. You don't have to be nasty. The politics doesn't have to be this zero-sum game where everybody's screaming at each other. And um, he, he, he's done that. I mean, he's been pretty frustrated with the legislature because they've been sitting on that $4 billion that people could really use right now. The legislature now announces that they're getting close to a deal. and They're hoping to have it on the governor's desk this week. We'll see if that happens. I think they were sick of being criticized for being on their seven-week vacation <laughs> when, when yeah, there were essential workers, etc., waiting for um, their their money, but uh, you know he's he's dealt with them, and it's a veto-proof Democratic legislature. Uh, Judy from Hudson, thank you for calling. Hi, Judy. Hello, Jared and Marjorie. Uh, I listened to the interview with Charlie Baker on Monday, and it struck me several times when he said that he was sixty-five and kind of laughing about it that no politician who was looking to run would want to point out his old age. <laughs> That was one thing. And the other thing is that I don't think he felt he could get the support of the Republican Party in terms of campaign funds because he was considered a rhino and not following the the Trump uh, rules. So I think he wanted to leave while he was on top and did a good job and was well thought of. And I don't think this is, of course, my very personal opinion, that he could tolerate being that kind of a Republican or being associated with what the Republican Party has become. 
Judy, thank you very much for the call. We just have a few minutes left, but we're going to talk about this again at the show. But meanwhile, if you want to give us a quick call and tell us what you think about Governor Baker, um, uh, that would be fantastic. Rama from Magnolia, thank you for calling. Hello. Hello, Marjorie, and hello, Jared. Hi. Hi, there. hi, hi, and thanks for taking my call. And I, I, I like Charlie Baker a lot. You know, I met him briefly. I, I, I love the guy. I think he does a great job. He's honest. And he's basically, he's a member of my party. He's a member of the Independent Party, really, if he'd be truthful and honest about it, uh, which really isn't a party. It's just independent common sense for the Commonwealth. And, uh, Marjorie, you talked about shenanigans. I had a family member who was part of the legislature, uh, state rep, way back when. He could tell stories about shenanigans. And I think if Charlie Baker ran as an independent, if the attorney general, state treasurer, state auditor, and secretary of state were required to be independent, that would uh, take out a lot of the shenanigans of party. Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. I think for those those positions, at least, we should have only independents able, able yeah. to... Well, that's a tough one. What do you think? I think that's really almost impossible to do, Rama. People are going to be Republicans or Democrats or independents. We've had challenges from independents in the past. It hasn't it hasn't um, worked that well. The problem, I think, if you and thank you for the call, Rama, in Massachusetts, the legislature is I mean, what are there? Five Republican senators and 10, I mean, I'm guessing at the numbers. It's a fraction. It's, it's, It's almost nobody. And the ones that are in there tend to be a little bit, you know. Way over on the right hand side, you know Jeff Deal, who's who's been supported by Trump. When you meet Jeff Deal, and we saw him before because he's run for for office many times before, he, he's he's a nice guy. He, he comes across very well, so he doesn't look, you know, like he's fire breathing. But some of his cohorts in the Republican Party up on Beacon Hill are breathing fire quite regularly, I think, or some of the people that run the that run the party behind the scenes. Well, and I think that's probably what he, part of what he's referring to in the in the statement is that th- that is now a part of campaigning. That is a part of running for re-election is to have it having to answer from within your own party something that he probably doesn't find the 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 fortitude to deal with when he's got the work of the pandemic at hand. And we should also point out among his successes are the fact that Massachusetts does lead in the vaccination regard. Yep. Uh, we were doing very well uh, financially prior to the pandemic and have rebounded well, not to pre-pandemic levels, but done well in that regard too. Uh, and again, these are all the things that Charlie, Governor Charlie Baker loves to do. Well, you know, th- there was a the terrible disaster at the Department of uh, Motor Vehicles when there was not a recognition of people getting getting away with uh, drunk driving that they weren't prosecuted for. And that resulted in that horrible accident with that young man who had a record for drunk driving, killing all his motorcyclists. On the other hand, they did cut down dramatically on the wait times of the RMV, which really matters to people. I mentioned before the Department of Children and Families, which struggles constantly to get enough money and enough social workers in there to deal with the most horrifying, sad, desperate cases in the state of parents who can't take care of their kids. He did throw a lot of money at, at that place. And he worked with the Department of Children and Families when he was under, uh, well, then was called the Department of Social Services. And after this kind of messed up beginning of the vaccine rollout, remember he talked to us one that day here when he said great. his hair was on fire yeah. because the website was struggling. We are now one of the leaders in the state uh, for vaccine, um, uh, in the country, rather, for getting vaccines in people's arms. So anyway, we're going to come back to this at the end of the show and talk about it again. But right now, now, Jared, we are moving on. 
We are, and coming up, we will speak with an abortion provider from Massachusetts who's on rotation at the last abortion clinic in Mississippi, which is now at the center of a Supreme Court challenge to Roe versus Wade. That's next on Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy. So inside the last operating abortion clinic in Mississippi, Massachusetts Dr. Cheryl Hamlin is part of a rotation of physicians who travel in from out of state. Dr. Hamlin, an obstetrician-gynecologist in Cambridge, joins us on the line now from Jackson, Mississippi, where the clinic she's working at now is in the center of a Supreme Court case that may lead to one of the most consequential rulings on abortion rights in decades, and arguments are starting this morning, are going to be done this morning. Dr. Hamlin, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Doctor, let, let's start with uh, what this case that the Supreme Court is going to be hearing about today, uh, what it means to abortion rights. Um, well, so the, the law itself is um, making, you know, blocking beyond 15 weeks. I mean, it's worth being clear that we only go up to 16 weeks. So, uh, you know, the, the law was clearly directed at us. Nothing magical happens at 15 weeks. But, um, you know, their, their goal is not necessarily to restrict abortions to 15 weeks in Mississippi, but it's, you know, to put it in front of the Supreme Court. So if they actually allow this law to go through, um, it's basically kind of overturning Roe, <clears throat> Roe v. Wade, which says that we have, uh, you know, that women have the right to an abortion up until the time of viability. So from a, a practical standpoint, for women in Mississippi right now, t- talk us through what they face with that limited 15-week timeline. Well, so like like most like all clinics, really, in, in the United States, most of the procedures that we do are first trimester. Uh, you, you can, you maybe if you listen closely, you can hear the protesters in the background. I was trying to find the quiet. I wondered. Uh, anyway. I yeah. wondered what those noises were. So those are the people outside, uh, and those which is a constant. Outside, and I am, I am sitting in an office inside the building, so you can tell how loud they are. But um, uh, yeah, so. Um, for the women in Mississippi, um, the vast majority of, of procedures we do are first trimester and below 11 weeks, um, as is the place everywhere. And honestly, the number of procedures we do between that that window of 15 to 16 weeks is is small. Like I don't think I have any this week. And last time I was here, maybe I did one. So we're talking about a small number. Um, but those are often the women that are the most... Um, you know, disenfranchised, you know, they, a lot of times they're adolescents, actually. Um, and a lot of times they are, you know, either they found out late, or um, maybe they did come in in a timely fashion for their first visit, but Mississippi has a two visit in person law. So they actually have to physically show up two times, um, 24 hours, at least 24 hours apart. And sometimes they come into the first one, and, you know, they live three hours away, they can't get time off work, and now they have to come again. And 
um, you know, time goes by before they can get back again. And that probably describes the majority of people that come in between 15 and 16 weeks. Let's talk about the clinic itself uh, you're at. I was reading about it, you know, the, the constant protests, really the the frightening um, position of some of the people that work there and the kind of blockade you have so people can kind of sneak behind a, a fence when they drive in to avoid. Describe what physically your clinic is like down there. Yeah, so I mean, you know, there's protesters everywhere, but they're particularly vocal here. And I don't mean to laugh, it's just listening to them scream in the background while I'm having this conversation. So, you know, they, they do block the entrance. Um, we do have, um, you know, the, the defenders that, that, that they called that um, help walk women in if they have to walk past the protesters. They, like many places, they will kind of put up, there's a woman sitting there right now with a sign saying, you know, gifts for the clinic patients. I mean, she's not part of the clinic. Her goal is to distract them and get them to go someplace else. Um, you know, they stand with a megaphone. There's a big black tarp in front of the clinic so that, um, you know, you can't see the front door from the street, but they'll you know, get ladders and climb up on top of the ladders with a megaphone and scream. And, you know, and they they call me all kinds of things, you know, baby killer, mass murderer. But, you know, right now he's saying basically, like, you're not getting health care. You're just here to kill your baby. So that's kind of what he's saying right now. Is it is it is it men and women? I know that uh, in Boston, oftentimes, Oddly, it's 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 mostly men that are protesting outside these clinics, but that isn't always true. I'm wondering what it's like there. It's definitely mostly men. And, you know, there are women. Yeah. Um, there, there. Um, I think one one of the more vocal people brings his daughters, who are upper teens or over twenties. I don't know how old they are. So, um, you know, they come often. But there are some women. Yeah. We're speaking with Dr. Cheryl Hamlin of Mount Auburn Hospital. By way of understanding the significance of this clinic, which is the last abortion clinic in Mississippi, can you describe how you, a Massachusetts doctor, has ended up, we know you're not there full-time, of course, but how you've ended up doing work there? Yeah, I mean, I've always provided abortions. I mean, I thought that was my job as a gynecologist. I thought that's what everybody did. Um, so perhaps was fairly naive about the situation. You know, patients came to me and said they wanted an abortion and I scheduled it at the hospital or if, it, you know, if it's an office thing, you know, I did it in my office. Um, and I thought that's what everybody did. Or, you know, maybe some people don't want to and they refer them to me, you know, I mean, but um, after the election in 16, it became, um, you know, it's just like a, a a hammer in my head, you know, it's like, oh my God, you know, that's not the way the rest of the country or even potentially the, the state in Massachusetts works. I mean, that, you know, some people really don't have access and sort of felt like I needed to be more proactive and sort of realize that that meant leaving the state, at least, you know, on, on gigs. And so, um, Really, I was, as well as feeling like I didn't understand the rest of the country, like I, or, you know, parts of the country, um, and wanted to go visit. And so I had almost like two separate, like, coffees, like, very soon, like within a week after the 16 election with, you know, with a couple of different people, like, what am I going to do? Like, I need to figure out how to, like, go visit other states and 
you know, support them. And a mutual friend introduced me to the medical director here. And so I flew down. I'm like, yeah, this, this is what I need to do. This is, this is it. We're talking with uh, Dr. Cheryl Hamlin. She's from Mount Auburn Hospital. Doctor, you know, point out to people, in Massachusetts, uh, Medicaid covers abortion, so you don't have to come up with the uh, $600 or $700 or $800 uh, for a surgical abortion. We don't have these various rules about coming back in two days. Talk about this in terms of what's happening in Mississippi, what the what the burdens are on women seeking abortion in Mississippi, and also the women that are now coming from Texas because of their outlawing abortion uh, post six weeks. Um, they're driving hundreds of miles to you. So give us a sense of, of that. Right. So to the first question, um, not only does Medicaid not cover abortions in Mississippi, but Mississippi is one of those states that didn't expand Medicaid. And, you know, after working in Massachusetts, not that things are perfect there, not at all. Um, but it's pretty rare that I see someone that doesn't have insurance, even even undocumented get, you know, some some form of insurance. So um here that's not the case. I mean, I actually do see women who don't have insurance at all. Um, and obviously that impacts their ability to get things like birth control that might actually prevent them from coming to the clinic. Or, um, you know, I mean, I've had women that say they want a tubal ligation because they have three kids and they just can't get it because they can't afford it. So that that's fairly striking to me, women that say, oh, I can't afford birth control, which that essentially never happens in Massachusetts. Not never, but essentially never. Um, so I, that to me is, is striking. And yeah, no insurance pays for abortions here. So they're all coming in with their cash and their credit cards. But that's, um, but- and yes, that's Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that's one of the ironies. It seems sometimes if you want to get an abortion very soon, you can't get it because you can't get the money together. So you end up having, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a lot. Eight hundred no, bucks can be a lot of money if you don't have any. Right. Right, and people have delayed their care because they have to, you know, figure out how they're going to get their money. But they don't pay for everything, and it's like everything kind of cumbersome to get through and call and, and get the assistance, but. Um, and then to the second question, yeah, we've seen we've seen a bunch of patients from Texas, and it's just bad, you know. I mean, just yesterday, I, you know, I drove eight hours to get here. You're telling me I have to come back another day. I have a test tomorrow, you know, so I have to go back tonight. I mean, it's just you kind of wonder what makes you wonder what purpose is being solved. Now, someone that might have gotten her procedure in. Texas that, you know, six or seven weeks now, by the time she gets out here, she's already seven or eight weeks. Now she's got to come back again. Now she's going to be, you know, nine, 10, 11 weeks. I mean, what, you know, what, what, what's being solved by this law? It's, it's, it's remarkable actually. And, and I understand that you're required to tell lies to patients by, by Mississippi state law involving abortion Mm -hmm. and breast cancer. Yeah. I mean, I am able to immediately negate it, but I think, so, you know, as I I have to tell you that it causes breast cancer, but it doesn't, you know, so I can say that, Um, but, you know, and I, you know, and when you look at at people, when you're saying that, you know, some people kind of give that smirky nod, like, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Um, But some people are just like, 
puzzled. Like, well, why are you telling me that then? And I, you know, it, it's just, and you know, and some people I'll say it and then like the next day they'll be, so, so how much is this going to increase? You know, even though I've said it doesn't like the next day, like that's what they heard. And they come back the next day. So is this really going to affect my risk of breast cancer? Like, no, it's not, you know, so it's, it's an outright lie. And, you know, they talk about conscious objection. Well, you know, where is my right to just say, I'm not going to say that. Yeah. So, of course, people are trying to to read the tea leaves on this, the way the, the makeup of the Supreme Court has changed. Again, they're hearing arguments this morning, uh, and a decision will come presumably by June. What are the consequences should the Supreme Court side with Mississippi and keep these restrictions in place? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, locally, as I said, and, you know, it'll affect a relatively small number of people, but... Um, it, but the most vulnerable, well, I think that, I think the reason this, you know, and, and I think to be fair, Mississippi and, and Alabama that I know of, and I think I've heard Louisiana, you know, I mean, th- this stuff has been going on since long before I became aware of it. I mean, there's always some law that's being passed that goes before a more local court and then gets overturned and people are sitting on, you know, I mean, there was a law passed in Mississippi banning abortions beyond six weeks, but it got overturned. So, you know, people sitting on, you know, pins and needles, like, oh, is that going to pass? What are we going to do? And then it doesn't, and we move on. Um, I think the reason this is a bigger deal is because it does have national implications in that the point of it is to overturn Roe v. Wade. That, that, That really is the goal. It's not to ban abortions at 15 weeks. Um, we're talking with Cheryl Hamlin. She's a physician at uh, in obst- specializing in obstetrics and gynecology at Mount Auburn Hospital. Uh, two last quick things from me, Dr. Hamlin. Uh, w- one of the reasons I assume that you're there is because there are many local physicians, not just in Mississippi, but all across the country where there are very um, anti-abortion forces who don't want to be performing abortions in the town they're living in. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, and... You know, I I haven't gotten an opportunity to talk to a lot of local OBGYNs, but my understanding is there are actually some that might actually be interested in working here and and including like residents winning training just to like do a rotation or, you know, come come a few times just to get the experience. But, um, you know, the two the two biggest barriers from my understanding is that, um, you know, one, if you live locally, it's easier for the protesters to track you down. And I have heard stories of um, providers that live locally being harassed um, at their home. Um, but probably the bigger problem is is that the local hospitals don't want to give privileges to anybody that, that works here. And so um, you wouldn't be able to like do anything else or work anywhere else um, if you came here a few days a month or something like that. Um, you know, and that is one of the, the trap laws, the uh, um, targeted um, restrictions against abortion providers is that um, providers need to have hospital privileges. And that got overturned in part because the providers tried, you know, the, the people like me flying in tried to get hospital privileges and were pretty much, you know, turned down and you know, by all the hospitals, nobody wanted to give anybody hospital privileges. So I think it just makes it a very hostile place to work if you live locally. 
Doctor, I can go home and yeah, yeah, yeah you can go. Yeah, D- Doctor, yeah. Um, without getting any privacy details away, I'm sure there have been uh, one or two or maybe more cases that you've dealt with that for you kind of illustrated why the right to abortion is so important. And if people maybe understood that individual young woman's experience or teenage girl's experience, they might uh, be more inclined to adopt a pro-choice perspective. Can you think of one or two to share with us? I mean, I can think of, um, you know, one was actually a, um, you know, a, a, a young woman. when I asked about birth control, she said she was, she was lesbian and and you know that prompted her to go on to say that she was raped and that's why she was there um and she didn't need birth control because she didn't plan to have sex with men um but she was only there because she was raped so that you know that like well you know not everybody is just you know not forgetting you know forgetting to use their birth control um another woman who was a little further along actually had planned to continue the pregnancy and her husband beat her up and she got scared and didn't feel like she could bring a child into that environment. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, a lot of the adolescents say, yeah, I mean, they're like, well, I, I want to go to school. Um, and, and as has been, you know, having read every article about this in the past few, few weeks, I mean, as is brought up a lot, I mean, Mississippi, the whole country, really. Mississippi is not an easy place to um, have a child and go to school and have a job. Um, you know, you you can't really do all of that. and Because of um, poverty. And it's very poor. It, it's poverty, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You said it, yeah. Well, Doctor, I'm glad you're down there. Yes, certainly stay safe. <laughs> and Yeah, um, thank you so much. Yeah, we very much appreciate your time, and we very much appreciate uh, your efforts to help these um, women in Mississippi. Thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you, Dr. Cheryl Hamlin is an obstetrician and gynecologist at Mount Auburn Hospital in Cambridge, and she called in to us from Jackson, Mississippi, where she's on rotation at the last operating abortion clinic in the state. Again, Dr. Hamlin, stay safe, and thank you for being with us today. Coming up, medical ethicist Art Kaplan is here to discuss the ominous Omicron, COVID pills, and more. That's all next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy. So the United States may be about to get a new tool to combat COVID-19 as an antiviral pill reduces severe cases, makes its way through federal approval. We're going to talk to Art Kaplan about this and a bunch of other medical news. He's the Drs. William F. Virginia Conley Mini Professor and founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine in New York City. Art, thank you very much for joining us as always. Thanks for having me. You know, before we get um, to what's going on with with COVID, um, the United States Supreme Court is hearing challenges this morning on this Mississippi abortion case. We just talked to a physician from Boston, actually from Cambridge, Mount Auburn Hospital, who's been going down to Mississippi uh, to the last uh, abortion clinic there to help out uh, the other physicians that are performing abortions there. I'm wondering what the state of the ethical debate is these days with all these challenges to row uh, in, in, in medicine. Where, 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 where is your field on uh, abortion 2021? 
I'll, I'll tell you something interesting, Marjorie. It's a really great question. And the answer is almost nowhere. And the reason is it isn't ethically being argued very much anymore. It's politics. Yeah. Uh, if you yeah. look at stories in the media, social media about abortion, you rarely see anybody from ethics. You'd think, wow, of course, they're going to weigh in. They have to say something about viability or, you know, what's the conflict between the rights of the mom and not wanting to carry a pregnancy and so forth and so on. Nothing. It's all political comment. Who's got the troops? Who's got the votes? Um, what are the Supreme Court justices likely to do about overturning well-established precedents? But the ethics has faded into the background. I think it's unfortunate. I'll just say one thing about this, this notion that uh, viability is the line that makes some sense. That's what Roe relied upon. I still believe that it makes some sense. And while people are arguing that a heartbeat emerges, uh, you can argue about whether a fetus at 15 weeks even has something that could be described as a heart, but let's concede something is there, a little tube is moving. Um, It's not viable. And viability has not changed all that much uh, since Roe, believe it or not, although people are suggesting it has. Viability is determined by can you breathe. What fetuses can't do until they have lungs is breathe. Remember, how do they breathe in a woman? They're in a kind of pool of fluid, the amniotic fluid, and they're breathing like little mermaids or mermen or something. They're, They're doing it in a way that doesn't involve lungs. Until you get lungs, and that's like 21, 22, 23 weeks, you're not viable. And I think viability is morally significant. Having said that, I don't know. I think we're going to get a political resolution here, not a moral one. So, our Kaplan, moving to, to COVID now, of course, very much top of mind again. But we first want to ask you about something, you, a piece you co-authored. No nation has conquered COVID. I think that during this whole pandemic, all of the nations have been looking over the fence at one another. Well, are they doing it better? Are they doing it right? Well, okay, well, we fail, we, we surpassed them there uh, <laughs> as we see which countries d- took on which measures. But what have you found surveying, surveying the world? Yeah, well, well, to be honest, we didn't survey the whole world, but we picked out some representative, I don't know, 10, 12 countries where people could have vaccination. You know, they might have used that. You, you, we didn't really take a look at Africa. They didn't have vaccination as an option there, they don't have them. But long story short, no matter where you look, Sweden, Serbia, Northern Ireland, Ireland, uh, Czech Republic, what you see again and again is different strategies tried and nothing has actually worked. There have been lockdowns, right? Very tight lockdowns, can't go anywhere. As soon as you open up, boom, the virus comes back. You, You get results while you're locked in, but unless everybody's prepared to, you know, lock down severely forever, uh, the virus is going to rear its head and has. By the way, that's true even in places like South Korea and China, where they really had tough lockdowns. People try to incentivize folks to go get um, vaccinated, but that hasn't worked anywhere much in the world. Sweden tried this idea that they just let the virus run rampant, build up so-called natural immunity. That didn't work, killed a lot of people. They finally gave up on it and said, forget it. So for those of you touting natural immunity here, which there still are, DeSantis in Florida would be an example. Doesn't work. It just it caught the, the toll of death and disability and hospitalization is too big. 
what we did see is what really hasn't been tried, and I'm hoping this is our 2022 good news, test more and isolate that way. No one's really taken the strategy of test every day or test before you go to school or test before you go to work. I have a feeling that would work much better than just shutting down schools or cities or whatever that that has failed everywhere so it's not a great track record despite all the yelling and screaming about what to do nobody's really mastered covid nobody we're talking to our medical ethicist art kaplan (laughs) well speaking of something that may not make you feel too comfortable especially if you live in the state of new hampshire um this federal judge in missouri has uh, partially and temporarily halted one of uh, Biden's big pushes uh, on vaccine requirements um, when healthcare workers in 10 states, their governments sued, and one of them was New Hampshire, saying that despite what the president said, these healthcare workers were not going to have to get vaccinated uh, right now. This is kind of juxtaposed to a, it was a conservative federal judge in Missouri, but that's juxtaposed to a conservative Supreme Court which said that Mass General could fire healthcare workers mm-hmm. who weren't vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So, what does all this mean? Well, first, if anybody was under the illusion that we have consistent policies about COVID around the U.S., every day a different court opinion is appearing at different levels state courts, federal appeals courts, appeals up to Supreme Court justices with different answers. They're all over the place, nothing consistent. I would say, to be fair, there's a little bit more of a let's put this on hold until we work it out in the courtroom kind of attitude. A lot of these things don't say you're right, you can't mandate, you can't make the worker do this, or you can't make the teacher do this. But we want to think about it longer, so we're going to put it on hold. That's kind of what that Missouri thing is with the 10 states. But I'll tell you one thing that I do see. Every court is very worried about allowing religious exemptions. Not all, but most, when you see them saying, you have to put this on hold until we figure out whether it's okay to mandate, they're pointing to no religious exemption allowed. And it's clear that conservative courts take very seriously religious belief, the right to act on one's religious values, and whether it's bacon cakes for gay couples or you know, uh, saying I don't want to get vaccinated because it violates my religion. They're paying close attention there. I completely disagree with that. The reason I do is got a long history in other court decisions saying if your religious belief puts the public at risk, you can't do it. I mean, it's nice to say you want to claim a religious exemption, but I can't do that and say, you know, I got to beat the sin out of my kid with a stick. So you got to let me do that. It doesn't you know, qualify all the time. But that's, boy, I must have seen just this week, 10 court opinions, different ones in different places. Yes, no, maybe, sort of, put it on hold. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. So uh, earlier this week, I think it was this week, um, speaking with Jim and Marjorie, the governor talked about introducing uh, a QR code vaccine passport uh, that wouldn't be just for Massachusetts. He said that he's working with a number of states to develop this. Of course, we've been looking for wondering if there would be some sort of consistency throughout the United States, or at least we would have an apportion. How does a QR code work? And just to to remind people who don't know what that is, if you go to a restaurant and scan the menu, that's what you're scanning. Yeah. So what would happen is you'd get a QR code 
it would be stenciled on your forehead like the mark of the beast, <laughs> and then you would roll down the uh, <laughs> checkout line at the supermarket, and they would scan you as you lay on the. Th- no, hopefully not into somebody else's bag. Hopefully. So at the way it really works, you get a card and it has a QR code on it. And by the way, I think all of my bank cards now have the same thing. They're all chipped, as, as we say, for security and privacy. So I don't know, Marjorie, maybe we're about 18 months past my first complaint that we don't have a standardized QR code on this. Um, <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> like I, can't, I, can't, I went to Hawaii. Some of the listeners remember they have yes. type policies. I kept looking for my paper card. Sometimes I take a picture of it and put it on my phone and they would say, well, that's not good enough. We want to see your card. And the card's all mangled because it was never meant to fit in a wallet. Then there's phony cards because you could counterfeit these things in about a minute and a half if you have a mind to and take pictures of it. Yeah, we need a QR chipped code card. Should have been done a long time ago. We need to have it verified by somebody other than, you know, the person who takes it out and says, this is my card. Way overdue for this. Way overdue for this. And I think he's talking to 20 states. So, again, the holdouts aren't going to play ball. But, boy, it would be nice to have a standard fit in your wallet, secure uh, thing with a QR code that's hard to forge and be able to show that. I think New York City, just to praise them, has gotten pretty far. No deaths so far this week from COVID, and they've been very aggressive about mandates and very aggressive about show your uh, proof of vaccination. I do think that's our best bet. Yeah, yeah. I was in New York for uh, eight days, and every place I went, um, Mm -hmm. you had to Mm -hmm. show your your vaccination card. So, uh, Art Kaplan, uh, let's talk about Omicron. People are now worked up, businesses and and travel people plans and all these things. Uh, people are nervous about them. Then to make them more nervous, the uh, CEO of Moderna uh, says that the existing vaccines might not be effective. Um, do we just have to wait and see or, or what? By the way, don't you love Omicron? Yeah. Anybody remember the Transformers? Yeah. Omicron, oh, yes. king oh, of the that's, Transformers. That's right. That's right. I'd forgotten. It was like, oh my God, Omicron. (laughs) I know. If we were ever going to try and freak people out, this is it. (laughs) We didn't like warp speed too much when we were talking about developing vaccines. How about a virus named Omicron? Uh, Anyway, that aside, I I think it's too early to say anything. I wish the Moderna guy hadn't said anything because we don't know. There's two things that have to be studied. One is you take Uh, people who have uh, been uh, vaccinated and you get their blood and look at the antibodies and put them in a dish with this weird new virus and see if they attack it. It's lab studies of that sort. And then you're trying to figure out if people who are vaccinated, either uh, with the two shots or they got their third shot, what's the rate of difference between them and people who weren't relative to this virus. And that's slow because, you know, it takes time to see who gets sick and who doesn't, but that's where the answer lies. Good news here. Even if this thing evaded uh, the current vaccines, they can tweak them and start to get out new ones in say three or four months uh, that would handle this bad news. We can't keep doing this. You're not going to have everybody go get back a new vaccine every four months right? I mean, even I, as a vaccine zealot, would start to think this is like nuts. I'm going to go in here every four months to get another vaccine. 
So we got to knock out the disease overseas. That's where variants occur. And by the way, if we don't do it in the American South and West, where there's a lot of non-vaccination, could get variants coming up there. So, you know, I, uh, this is not good because we're going to continue to see weird new viral variants yeah. and have to figure out how bad they are. Well, I mean, this kind of harkens back to, to surveying the world, doesn't it? Or, or the parts of the world that you did, because there is this debate about was too much emphasis placed on the booster shot here in the United States when yeah. more emphasis should have been put by the U.S. and other developed wealthy nations to get the rest of the world vaccinated. Yeah, I, I, I've been writing something, Jared, just yesterday and today, which I'll send to you guys and we can talk about it down the road. Um, it's my... Uh, Grinch assessment of COVID for the year. And one thing I would say is we do need to get Africa vaccinated, but it isn't going to get done just by talking about it. There's no program yet. There's no concrete effort to say, here come the vaccines. Here we're training the people to give them. Here's some refrigerators. Here's a road so you can come to get a vaccination or we'll go to you. And by the way, I'm going to name some places. You tell me what you think is most likely never to be vaccinated in a year. Syria, Chad, Ethiopia, Congo, you get my, Yemen, get my point? I mean, yeah. there's conflict zones all over the place. Yeah. And unless we figure out some way to get it, North Korea, are they welcoming us in with open arms to vaccinate everybody? They don't even acknowledge COVID. So we have a challenge. And I do think we have to do it. But it's going to require real plans, not just statements by the WHO to vaccinate the world. We're talking to our medical ethicist, Art Kaplan. So what about this, uh, the hopes for this Merck antiviral pill um, that people were initially very excited about to treat people who have COVID? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think it works so far. It looks like it's about 30 to 35 percent effective in knocking out COVID. Bad news you got to take it within the first couple of days of symptoms. It doesn't work after that. The virus takes off. There's too many, too, too much virus. And so it doesn't seem to be as effective. It's an early use drug. But good to have weapons. Since we're getting into bad news, I'll make a prediction about some good news. Next year, if we do more testing, if we keep trying to vaccinate, but also add on treatments that prevent people from going to the hospital or getting sick, That's a better strategy. I don't like putting all my chips on just vaccination. You know, variants can dodge. We see what Omicron is doing. It may get around these vaccines. So treatments are important, too. we got to pursue all of them. So, okay, we only have a couple of minutes left here. But before we go, as you may know, Dr. Mehmet Oz, who is a cardiothoracic surgeon and TV star, says he's going to run for the United States Senate in Pennsylvania. He's a Republican. Uh, he's famous. What do you think about Dr. Oz? Well, I guess I have a view similar to that of the munchkins. I think <laughs> the all-powerful Oz is a phony. Um, he doesn't, he touts nonsense. There was a Lancet study a couple of years ago that said 60% of what he was endorsing on TV was bunk. Yeah, he's really been ethically irresponsible and touting all kinds of malarkey. I think he was an ivermectin guy for a while or an HCQ guy for a while on COVID. I think he sold himself out for ratings. And 
I think that's horrible, and he should not. By the way, I also think he lives in New Jersey. Um, really? Yeah, I think he's got a. <laughs> I think he registered. Oh my to goodness! Vote in Pennsylvania at his in-laws or something, but he hasn't been. Well, if he could find Pittsburgh, I'll be shocked. But anyway, <laughs> um, be that as it may, I think it's horrible. I think he's likely to do well. <laughs> he's a high visibility guy. Yeah trust him uh, uh he's got a lot of backing and money i'm I, i'm not optimistic that he won't become the nominee whether he wins we'll see but uh he wouldn't be my choice and it increases <laughs> it would increase the quotient of uh doctors bringing their doctors medical- in the, yeah it's yeah. quite an assembly of doctors and scientists too it's like uh this is what America can offer you in terms of Dr. Rand Paul and uh, Dr. Oz. Yeah, that's a very excellent team. point. Not not really the ones that you might think are at the top of their professions, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> okay. I oh, and don't, let us not forget Dr. Uh, let us not forget Trump's doctor, uh, the guy in uh, Texas. Oh, Ronnie he, Jackson. He just yeah, said yeah, something wild just yeah. yesterday. Yeah. yeah, he's another. He's another okay. One. All right. Well, thank you very much, Art Kaplan. Great to talk to you as always. Thanks. Thank you so much to Art Kaplan is the doctors William F. and Virginia Connolly, mini professor and founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine in New York City. Thanks again. Coming up, national security expert Juliet Kayam joins us about the transition from COVID emergency to recovery. That's next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Boston Public Radio, our national security expert, Juliet Kayyem, will call in with the latest on the January 6th committee, as well as the supply chain mess-up and the holiday gift-giving. Then we'll have our transportation roundtable, former Massachusetts Transportation Secretary Jim Aloisi and Stacey Thompson of Livable Streets, with the latest on traffic, infrastructure, and free buses. I'm Jared Bowen, in for Jim Browdy. You'll want to stick around for the end of today's show. It's another edition of Ask the Vet. We've got Angel Animal Medical Center's Dr. Virginia Sinnott-Stutzman here to answer your questions on all things pet and pet care, including whether you ought to consider getting your hands on the COVID-19 pet vaccine. Then we'll close out by returning to you to get your thoughts on news of Governor Baker's decision not to run for re-election. Stay tuned ahead on Boston Public Radio. Egan, Jared Bowen, Executive Arts Editor here at GBH, is filling in for Jim Browdy, who has the day off. Jared, thank you very much for coming in. Hello again, Marjorie. Hello again. You are listening to our number two of uh, Boston Public Radio. So Juliet Kayyem is joining us. She's an analyst for CNN, former Assistant Secretary of Department of Homeland Security and Faculty Chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and our national security expert. Hello, Juliet. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Hello to both of you. So, Juliet, uh, let, let's just start with what we know about this yeah. shooting in uh, Michigan, in Oxford. It's about 30 miles north of Detroit. A 14-year-old, uh, Hannah 
Juliana, a 17-year-old Madison Baldwin, 16-year-old Tate Meyer were killed. Seven other kids were injured, and some of them were injured pretty badly. Mm-hmm. Some talk of some forewarning of an attack in the school. A 15-year-old shooter is in custody, but we, at this point, I don't think, maybe it's changed. Do we know anything about why he did this? No, we don't yet. The sheriff uh, in the most recent press conference uh, uh, said that, or his most me- recent media event said that um, uh, that they did find some materials in the home. They are in the home, although he's not speaking and his parents have a lawyer for him. And so we won't get much from him uh, that may go to motive. The other issue, of course, is that the gun uh, that he used was purchased by the family, probably the father, uh, just uh, five days ago. And so you're just seeing, a, you know, a, a motive and means coming together relatively quickly. Uh, he had a lot of remaining ammunition. Uh, and uh, right now you have three teenagers uh, dead, but we don't know that I think two are probably still in critical. So this is familiar uh, and we go through this again. It's the first major, uh, what we would call mass school shooting uh, since uh, students have come back uh, in the post-COVID restrictions that have existed in so many states. Uh, and 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 so, you know, and it, as I said, it, it becomes familiar. I, I, the thing I, I want to say is in very rare instances, do you have uh, um, a school as prepared as this one seems to have been, uh, and still you had a mass shooting and three dead. Uh, we don't know what they knew before, so I'm going to be careful here, what the school knew before about this student. Uh, but we do know the students certainly protected themselves. Uh, diabolically, the shooter tried to get into one of the rooms acting like a sheriff, and they knew exactly what was going on. Some of them put the videos on TikTok. Uh, the school had uh, done drills with law enforcement. Law enforcement knew the school, so we do all the table tops and the exercises. And there was an armed sheriff's deputy uh, who probably is a hero. I don't know the yes. details um, in terms of protecting the students and, and keeping the killer student alive. So this is a rare instance where uh, the student is still alive. Um, and therefore, I think we probably won't learn a lot uh, because a lot probably won't leak in terms of them wanting to build a case and whether they try him as an adult. He is young. Um, 15 is young. Is this the case now that that you think that the majority of – I know you can't speak to everything, but the majority yeah. of school districts actually are sadly prepared for something like this at this point? Yeah, my major school districts, uh, the, the details of the school I don't know, uh, but certainly uh, students are – uh, by state law, are often are well aware of what they need to do in terms of run, fight, uh, run, um, hide, fight. Uh, law enforcement does a lot of drills and trainings around school shooting because they're so common and uh, and at least reported by the sheriff. They've done several around the school, uh, and then you of course have armed deputies, which are rarer, uh, but not 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 totally unique to to large uh, schools like this, phys- large physical schools like this. We're talking with Juliet Kaim, our national security expert. Juliet, you had a great column yeah. in The Atlantic, which I'm a huge fan of these days. And yes. <laughs> they're doing great stuff at The Atlantic. And, um, you know, talking about the, the, the pandemic is not going to have a discreet end. And I think yeah. you asked the crucial question here, as now we're facing yet another variant. You know, what is, what is the right balance, balance. Um, acceptable trade-off between preventing infections and then trying to get back to our pre-pandemic yeah. routine. So 
What is the right balance? <laughs> well, it's not going to be answered by science. And so the point of the column, which got also, thank you for complimenting it, because it got plenty of criticism, maybe because of the headline, uh, was really to try to uh, make uh, the COVID response, or sort of where we are in COVID, uh, to give some historical analogies to try to sort of prepare people for, for what we're seeing, which is essentially a risk minimization phase. That's what we're in. We have all the tools that are necessary to combat this virus at this stage. And likely even with the new variant, the the the, the vaccines with the booster are, are going to be sufficient. People will get infected, but our, our goal is to make sure people don't end up in intensive care or die. So infection rates become maybe less relevant now and that we really should be looking to hospital capacity. Uh, and so we're, ba- we're, ha- we're in a recovery. It's hard to see that because the infection rate's getting higher. We're going into winter. We have a new variant that we're worried about. There's going to be new uh, travel mandates or travel um, restrictions. Uh, but that's the nature of the kind of recovery that we're in, which I, I just dubbed it a re- adaptive recovery, which, you know, it's, it's, it's moving forward, but it's not moving in a linear direction. And so, um, uh, you know, we, the, and so the, these ups and downs is panic about a new variant and then maybe less panicked or the worry about a Delta, uh, another Delta or a Delta winter all of those are sort of how we have to think about moving forward, continuing with the mandates of vaccinations and the boosters and science. And so my my overall point was uh, we need to put to rest, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, we're going to follow the science because these are calculations uh, that are really political and policy in nature. Uh, are we really going to close schools? Come on. I mean, the, 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 the counter to that is that there's a tremendous harm for doing that. So it was try to put people... Um, you know, as I try to do with these columns is to sort of put them, you know, place where we are uh, 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 and where we're going uh, in terms of the, the months ahead. It will seem dire, but it really does look better, certainly much better than than you than us talking a year ago at this stage. We should mention the title of the column is the pandemic yes. is ending with a whimper in case people are wondering why <laughs> yes. there might be controversy. So whimper, but, but, but let me ask. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, answer that. But also, I want to ask you, you point out that this is perhaps on a, a larger scale than what I'm about to mention that you have mentioned, which hurricanes, oil spills, yeah. things like that. When we have disasters like that, there's always a plan in place. And there's someone who steps yes. in to guide us through the transition. But in something as epic as this, who's the person who needs right. to step in and guide? Right. And it's probably not Fauci. I don't want to lay on the Fauci stuff simply because, you know, the, the right wing is sort of has him as a bullseye. And I was a little bit coy about that in the column. But when I when I say whimper, what I mean is that this idea of sort of COVID and, the, and a white flag or that it's just going to going to leave. We just got to get out of our heads. And like what you said, Jared, it's. If that's different than hurricanes and, and tornadoes and earthquakes and even a terror attack where you recover after the harm is gone. This is different. And so, yeah, so we but but all recoveries or most recoveries are marked by a change in personnel. Um, the first responders know what they're doing and they're doing what they're doing. But that as you rebuild society and how you're going to rebuild it, there might be a different face. And uh, we did that in the BP oil spill uh, with Secretary Mabus, who was Secretary of the Army at the time, uh, coming in. He wasn't a first responder. You had that with Superstorm uh, Sandy uh, with then Secretary HUD of HUD, uh, Sean Donovan coming in. And I don't know if they're going to plan sort of a different face. The president is speaking tomorrow. Uh, but I do think that 
we demand too much of Fauci to have him lead us uh, or be the face of these essentially political and policy decisions that are made at this time. But just one last thing on this, you know, that we're talking now because of this new variant about travel restrictions. We're talking now about reassessing our Christmas plans, yeah. uh, you know, our vacations that people may have planned. So how do we make those kinds of decisions? You're the security mom. Yeah. You're going to fly yeah, halfway okay. Oh, okay. across the world this Christmas with your family? <laughs> uh, that's the plan right now, not halfway around the world. We are planning on on leaving uh, the country, and that's not changing. I haven't changed anything. So um, I haven't changed anything with the new variant. Um, Delta probably would have uh, brought me inside or, or more isolated than I otherwise uh, might have been. Um, and so, you know, I'm not, I don't know how I'm going to feel in December or January in terms of going to a restaurant. But I, in terms of the big things, like, am I going into work? Yes. Are my kids going to school? Yes. You know, um, am I, am I on airplanes? Yes. Uh, all of that's remaining the same. I'm vaxxed. I'm boosted. I'm wearing a mask in public spaces. This is what a recovery looks like. And, you know, as, as I said, it's, it's, it's a whimper. In other words, I'm, I, there's no victory sign here. <laughs> You know, it's it's masked. Our our recovery is masked at this stage, but we can live life um, relatively to its fullest. I've gone to weddings, uh, uh, I've gone to events, and none none of that is changing right now. But as I said, you know, for listeners, part of the adaptation is I just I'm going to make a calculation uh, for each event. So the events I've gone to are vaccinated places or vaccinated events. So that, you know, you had to upload your your vaccine card for a wedding and things like that. What about the language that we see coming from the president now, which is changing? And maybe it's reflective yeah. of what you're saying that that we will come out of this. This is to some degree the new normal, but it's going to get yeah. better. There's less of the Got to lock down, got to be severe yeah. when it's necessary, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I liked what I heard uh, on Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday. Um, uh, and I really liked uh, and I hope I, I think I'm going to like what I hear tomorrow, which is uh, which is this this unsteady or uh, um, undone. I call it the undone recovery. Right. Like and it's just going to be unsteady. But that you're you're as a leader, Biden is needs to provide hope rather than going backwards. That's just a message that has to be said all the time. And I think I think he is well aware that the road ahead is 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 fraught with political and policy considerations. And he's taking them into account on Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, I'm forgetting what day it was um, when he spoke uh, when he had that press conference after uh, 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 after he met with his team about the variant. Uh, you know, he said, we're not going back to lockdowns. That was a, that was a line in the sand. Now, the, you know, you know, that's not a medical decision. That is a, I am calculating, you know, what I'm seeing with 10,000 other demands that our society requires. So what about Omicron? Uh, I'm, as yeah. I'm digesting this, as somebody who's a member of the media, you're somebody who's front yeah. and center on media all the time. I'm, I have started to wonder well, how scared are we supposed to be? Is there yeah. a level of fear mongering happening here? And is yes. it the media's fault? I, I don't know if it's the media's fault. I mean, part of it, I, I've thought about this a lot. So, of course, is you know, we, you know, I'm on air on CNN and, you know, I'm like, it's, I, I saw someone, you know, write on Twitter that, you know, Julia Kaim is trying to single handedly calm the network down. But, you know, <laughs> I, I get CNN. And also, you know, they provide I mean, I think I think 
in the sense someone like Sanjay Gupta and, and people like that are really good at putting this in perspective. It's just a different way of talking. I've sort of noticed that. And it's different disciplines. And that's why I do think you need this shift. Public health um, folks and, and, and the doctors that you've had on um, and that are on air and stuff, you know, tend to tend to talk in terms of probabilities and 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 um, and floors. I mean, in other words, they and 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 God thank them for that. I mean, in other words, they're thinking through the the, the I'm sorry, possibilities. They're thinking through the possibilities of what the variant could mean in terms of infection, in terms of is it uh, does it evade the vaccine? And they also are keenly aware of the unequal distribution of 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 health uh, in this country, let alone uh, throughout the world. And so we we need those voices. On the other hand, other voices that are talking about, I say we talk in bulk. Uh, and so people like me tend to talk about sort of, is the ship moving in the right direction? I know I may have left people behind and I'll, we'll deal with that or, or um, uh, uh, you know, or uh, there might be new waves coming my way that I have to worry about, but is the ship heading in the right direction. And thanks to the scientists, it is. So it's just a different way of talking. And I think, and then interpreting that talk. So when someone, when a doctor says, yes, it's possible that the virus evades this, this new variant evades the vaccine of, you know, of course, that's the story, because that's the terrifying scenario. What's the probability of that? Probably not high, given what we know, or at least not going to, most of us who are vaccinated and boosted will, will be okay. But one last thing about this, and, and then I want to move on. Um, lots of people, Jared and I were talking about this. You know, I can't be the only one that isn't invited to anybody's Christmas party this year. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I suspect there are yeah. not going to be a lot of Christmas parties this year. Yeah. People are worried about being inside, it, you know, windows open, fans going, whatever, with taking off their masks to eat and drink. So we're still not doing that. No. And that's, but that is also, I mean, I think that's part of the policy political calculation, the sense that a, a lot of it also is following on, is falling on our own risk assessment. So I'm with you, you know, we're not having, um, uh, uh, we generally had something. We're not having that again this year. Part of it is the responsibility factor. It is, I would, I would die if I learned that someone got sick yeah. because I needed to, you know, eggnog and brie. I do miss my baked brie though. This is second. <laughs> you know, and I come out of this Christmas period, you know, not as, not as heavy as I used to, but, um, but, uh, um, but uh, that is that, you know, I, I think that is the calculation. And I, I'm, you know, a new variant, an old variant, we still got Delta around, right? And so my recommendation is unless you can control the pool of people that you're with, other in terms of are they vaccinated and boosted, uh, uh, postpone or, yeah. in, you know, unless it's necessary, postpone. So weddings, you know, yes. And, and, and memorials, I went to a memorial. That's, that's an important moment for a family to, to be able to say goodbye to a loved one, all of those things matter. Well, speaking of fear-mongering, what about, yeah. well, we return to the supply chain, the other fear-mongering. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I stopped at a bookstore over the weekend expecting to see empty shelves, didn't see any <laughs> empty, maybe it was artful no. stocking or something, but no. it didn't seem to be empty store shelves. But now we're reading a, a really kind of interesting nuance to this, which is smaller stores, as the New York Times are reporting, are, are hoarding because they were told way back when, up, oh, you've, you've got to buy everything now or you're not going to yeah. have it this Christmas season. 
holiday right. season. Right. That, so part of it is the, you know, the the ebbs and flows of the panic and then the distribution. You saw this a little bit with the stock market and the new variant. It goes crazy on on uh, whatever the last day was open on Wednesday, and then you know back to normal by by Monday. Uh, you, so we te- we tend to react. So the supply chain, you know, may may be the dog that didn't bark. Knock on wood. Which is the the major issue on the supply chain as I described, was, is not, there were two issues. One is the manufacturing, which we really can't control, but other countries are controlling their own manufacturing. And the second is, of course, the distribution, which uh, uh, the, the Biden administration and then every port facility and every major retailer has put a lot of focus on hiring. It is all about hiring. Do you have the bodies to move uh, things um, 24-7. So the, the, the fears are, are not coming to fruition, which is terrific. There's more uh, a, a discreet, what do I want to say, sort of high-end items that may be a little bit difficult. I know my kids don't listen to me, so I bought one of the new, uh, the new AirPods. Uh, they're already here. I bought them on Cyber Monday, and they arrived yesterday. So, uh, you know, um, uh, yeah, he'll lose them. We're, we're going to see if they last till January. But, uh, um, but so, so th- that that's all good. And so I think that's right. So the what happened though is word gets out to the smaller facility, the smaller stores, whatever. Like you better hoard, and they did. And now they're oversupplied, which means that they'll probably have to reduce prices to move that inventory. So it really is unfortunate. But uh, some of that is just working out the kinks of a post-COVID world in which you're going to have these ups and downs. So they're turning away down in D.C. on this uh, uh, January 6th committee looking into the uh, rioting down at the Capitol. Mark Meadows has decided he, of course, was uh, former president. Donald Trump's chief of staff, when the January 6th attack happened, he's now cooperating. Steve Bannon, of course, is not. But where are we on this January 6th investigation, Juliet? So so I'm a little skeptical about Mark Meadows' uh, uh, willingness, although maybe he, you know, has had to come to Jesus. But, you know, you know, how much is he in contact with Trump? How much does Trump know that he's going to you know, sort of buy some time. I mean, I think, you know, if, if they have a strategy, it's to buy time until the Republicans, if the Republicans win the House and they disband the committee, right? I mean, that's basically what, what the, well, that's what their strategy is. Um, but on the other hand, um, Mark Meadows clearly allowed a leak of his book to come out uh, today about whether Donald Trump was sick or had tested positive right before one of the debates. Uh, and he also made it clear that he was in contact and cooperating with the committee. And so maybe he's making um, uh, uh, statements to other witnesses that 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 they should get on board. I just we just don't know. We're also, you know, this is, you know, the glass half full, half empty, the mirror, you know, like the blurry mirror. I have no idea that Trump's team uh, in terms of their willingness to go down with him at this stage. Wait a minute. But Mark Meadows is interesting. Would you, say, would you say that Meadows said that Trump may have tested positive? I yeah, that's just sort of a breaking yeah. story in The Guardian right now. So I, sh- I should be careful. The Guardian is reporting, mm-hmm. uh, you, you all aren't um, yet, that in a in an early version of the Mark Meadows memoir, because everyone has to write a memoir, uh, he says that Trump was, in fact, had tested positive before one of the debates. This will, once other news agencies confirm it, this will um, this will be news, although Trump made it news because he's already come out denying it and saying it was fake news. But 
there's a, seems to be a big asterisk with Mark Meadows in terms yeah. of to what extent he's going to testify. So he's handing over some stuff, perhaps not everything. He might interview. He might. Not. I mean, how are you reading to what level he's yeah. going to? Pre- is, well, I guess he's already speaking and, and cooperating, but what level to what level he's participating? Yeah. So that's what we don't know yet as to what level is he participating and what papers is he providing uh, in terms of. Uh, communications before and on that day. Mark Meadows is interesting because he obviously had a different, he had a separate career from Trump before he jumped in to be chief of staff. Does he, uh, does he, is he trying to save whatever is left of his reputation? The thing that's challenging for me is uh, the, if you abandon Trump, where are, what's your, what's your money source at this stage? That's, that's these, you know, another, like I, these guys are making lots of money at speaking events to MAGA and MAGA light uh, uh, organizations. I don't know, you know, if you're Mark Meadows, what's your, what's your career trajectory if it's not uh, on Trump's coattail. So that's why I'm skeptical, but nonetheless, it is, um, um, it is, um, uh, you know, it's, it's relevant. Yeah. Because um, people, Fox news pays people very well to appear on their, on their station. Yeah. So you do wonder about that money factor. Okay, so this is a great story. I'm glad we have time to talk about the cannoli caper at Logan Airport. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a great video as well. Tell us about the uh, the so Boston a- College, we assume a Boston College, he had a Boston College sweatshirt on anyway, and his cannolis trying to get through the TSA. <laughs> and his level yeah. of zen. <laughs> That's right. I know, I know. So I didn't know this, but Mike's pastries, you can buy the ingredients separately. I didn't know it either. And then combine them. And so he had the filling and then the, the pastry separated. <laughs> Apparently that's a no-no for whatever reason. You can come in with a box of Mike's pastries, cannolis, uh, if they're if they're assembled correctly. So that's that's what that's where we are. That is TSA's distinction. I'm not sure where that comes from. I was I, I was more mesmerized by uh, his enthusiasm to make his own cannolis. I, I thought the only reason why anyone ate cannolis is because you don't have to make them. Like it's like, it's like total pleasure with no sweat. But we should paint like the picture. Churros. Yeah, let's so paint he, the so picture. So here he is at the, in the yeah. TSA line. He's told that he has he can't carry the bag of cheese or ricotta, whatever goes into the cannolis. And so he clears space on the baggage, clears and moves out of the way of the suitcase, the belts, other people's belongings, and just goes to work making cannolis like it's yeah. like he's working at Mike's. I love him. I, I know. It was, I love him. I mean, I write like I, I, I completely respect him for that. Like the, just the total. I mean, I'm going to do this. But um, but yeah, I, 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 I do think uh, I, he just must be a big lover of Mike's pastry. Maybe there's something I don't know. Maybe there's something about putting the filling in like closer to time of. I of think well, probably the, the 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 outside would be would be. Uh, less soggy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. you have had that experience, right? Where the, it's like the ice cream cone, where the it's different. It's kind of cheese, not ice cream, but you know what I mean? It's yeah. been sitting too long inside the outer it's shell. Like a, it's like a cold churro. Like, it's like you just, yeah. you just don't do it. I know. Yeah. And, and, bake, and, bake, and cold baked brie. 
just back to full circle. I'm sorry about I'm sorry about your brie cheese. This because uh, really, I think I've had it once or twice. I know it's like not something that you make for yourself. Like you got to have people over. So I'm going to wait one more year. <laughs> you made me realize I miss Marjorie's pigs in a blanket now. Too. That's right. I I'm know. Famous. I remember. I know you yeah. are. I don't make the pigs in a blanket. I must admit, one of my daughter's friends does, but they are the highlight. Pigs in a blanket can't go wrong. It's <laughs> Juliet. Juliet, talk to you next week. Thanks a lot. Okay, I'll see you guys later. Happy holidays. You too. Bye. Same to you. Juliet Kayam is an analyst for CNN, former secret- assistant secretary at the Department of Homeland Security and faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Coming up, Boston moves closer to make more bus lines free of fares. We'll talk it through with transit advocates Jim Aloisi and Stacey Thompson. They're next on Boston Public Radio. Back to Boston Public Radio. Jad Bowen is in for Jim Browdy, who will be back tomorrow. So you're listening, of course, to Boston Public Radio. In one of her first moves as mayor of Boston, Michelle Wu asked the city council for $8 million to make three bus lines fare-free for the next two years. Joining us to discuss this, another transportation news, a transit advocate, Stacey Thompson, and Jim Aloisi. Stacey is the executive director of Livable Streets, and Jim is former transportation secretary and a contributor to Commonwealth Magazine. Still, he's still there, Commonwealth Magazine. Thank you very much, Jim Aloisi. Jim Aloisi in studio. I mean, you see, like, we're moving out of the pandemic. We have people back in the so studio excited. This now. might be the first time since I've been filling in that we've had an, I've had an in-studio guest. In-studio guest. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Triple really Triple vaccinated exciting. guest. <laughs> Next time, Stacey, will have you in, um, too. Next time. So, so, Stacey, since you're on Zoom, we'll, we'll start with you. Um, the Baker administration pulled out of this plan, this TCI plan, this so-called, what's it, what's it called, the transit Climate initiative, transportation climate initiative. I I don't have a sense of how big of a deal this is, if it was a mistake, not a mistake. What do you think? Yeah, so what I would say, so it is the Transportation Climate Initiative, which, um, you know, Governor Baker and several other leaders across the region have been working on for a few years. Um, I would actually say that what we're seeing is the result of – a COVID fatality, right? And that I would not be surprised if TCI came back in a couple of years time when the federal money starts drying up, when we stabilize gas prices. Um, And so I tend to be optimistic. Is it disappointing that we are not going to have a dedicated uh, revenue source for transportation in the next year or two? Yes. Was it going to solve all of our problems to begin with? No, you know, Jim and I talk about this all the time. There's lots of money that we need to be accessing. No one problem is going to fix it. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing the result of a lot of legislators and, and um, you know, local leaders getting squeamish in the region around potentially increasing um, gas prices when we're already seeing increased gas prices. 
Jim? Yeah, I think Stacy's right. I mean, uh, TCI is basically a fee, a carbon fee or a tax, if you want to use the word, on the wholesale price of gasoline, right? And so theoretically, the wholesaler has to pay a fee to the Commonwealth for the gasoline it's, it, sends, it, it, it puts out tied to what its emissions value is, right? And presumably that cost gets put up, passed along to the consumer. TCI was a tool, right? TCI was not really about raising money. Yes, it raises money, but it's a tool. If you believe that you want to transition or it's inevitable that we're going to transition to electric vehicles, having TCI as a way to reflect a more fair cost of the burdens of running an internal combustion engine is a way to gently nudge people toward that electric vehicle future, right? I think there's an issue about whether we're all going to move to EVs and how quickly. But that TCI was both a revenue-generating tool and an EV encouragement tool. And we're not going to use it. And I think it's, it's a missed opportunity. California does this. California does this, and it uses the money really smartly and well. Um, so this is not like it hasn't been working elsewhere. It works elsewhere. We're just we're too timid in Massachusetts to be East Coast leaders in anything. I think. Well, well, why is that? Especially in a moment where funding mechanisms are really being examined and reevaluated and restructured at this point. How, how could this not fit into this moment? I think it fits perfectly into the moment, which is why it's disappointing that we abandoned it. I, I you know, I think we were looking for the comfort of having multiple states in the region join us in this. But, you know, leadership is about leading, not waiting for everyone to surround you with comfort. Um, we do have a, a, a looming crisis, right, that's being masked by the federal funding that we've gotten as COVID relief. But there will come a day in the next couple of years where we're having the same conversations again, right? And apparently now it'll be a new governor whose headache that's going to be. And that headache is going to be, how do we fund MBTA operating expenses? How do we fund an equitable transition to electric vehicles? Because there's no plan for any of this, right? And unless we have a legislature and a governor willing to confront those issues in the short term, we're going to be having Groundhog Day conversations in the next couple of years. Well, you know, Stacey, a lot of people who are environmentalists have not been that thrilled with Charlie Baker's tenure as the governor of, of Massachusetts anyway. They don't – I mean, we do know – kudos to him on that huge wind farm, and that's going to be a wonderful thing um, for, uh, you know, jobs in New Bedford and jobs and obviously for the climate and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, – has he been? I mean, is is his departure? It's not going to be for a while now, but he's not running again. Was someone that is more of a, a climate warrior than than Charlie Baker seems to me to be to me in a way, anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the question, and I, I always say this when we're talking about funding or any sort of issue, is that you can point to wins and say, yes, you know, there there's a wind farm. Yes, the governor was the only Republican governor willing to go out on a limb for TCI. But is that enough? And so for people who really seriously pay attention to our climate crisis, they would say, by and large, Massachusetts is in no way, shape or form funding, planning or staffing a clean transition. And so I think it matters on can we count wins and say there were a few wins? Yes. Are we where we need to be by 2030? Absolutely not. And that's true in the transportation center sector and the energy sector. Yeah, I mean, I wrote about this in Commonwealth this week. Uh, Massachusetts, here's the, the truth. Massachusetts does not have a credible 
transportation sector decarbonization plan right now. We just don't. Yeah. Right? Our plan, which the interim clean energy climate plan, which was issued by Secretary Theoharides a year ago, right, uh, and hasn't changed, um, said basically our plan is to move everyone to an EV by 2050, right? And we're going to move a million people to an EV by 2030. Even if that were achievable, even if that were achievable, which it probably isn't, right? There's no plan in there for doing it equitably, right? What about those who can't afford an EV? What about people who don't have a driveway or a garage to charge? There's no plan in there to replace the lost revenue from the gas tax because think about it, folks. If everyone's driving an EV, gas tax revenues go from around $850 million a year to zero. So where are we filling that gap? So we face, a, we face the duality of a transport sector decarbonization plan that gives short shrift to having more people take buses and trains and rail, which would be very helpful in the short term to reduce emissions. Doesn't have a plan to fill the, the vast, huge financial gap that will be caused by this transition to EVs and doesn't have a plan to transition to EVs equitably. It's kind of a disaster. And it's going to, again, another headache for whoever is lucky enough to win the gubernatorial race next year. Where does that $850 million go? Is it discretionary? That's gas tax money. That goes into the highway fund, and then it gets distributed mostly to pay off debt service and mass, mass dot operations. Some of it goes to the T, but not a lot. It's a big hole to fill, and it's like a critical question, which is, among all the other things we've got to figure out, it's like, how do we fill that hole? When we get to the point where everyone's driving an EV. But keep in mind, more and more people will be driving EVs over time. The Biden administration, to its credit, uh, is encouraging this, right? And so the gas tax will continue to become less and less of a significant, stable revenue source. Like fares at the T have become an unstable revenue source, which is why you started out. Really good idea that the mayor, Mayor Wu has shown the leadership she's shown to say we've got to change this conversation around fair revenue. We'll get back to the mayor in a minute, but Stacey, I think you wanted to add something there. Yeah, no, I just want to echo what Jim's saying. And I'd also say that I think it's time for us to have some statewide policies that actually reflect how people live. <laughs> you know, right? Like two, two thirds of people currently who purchase vehicles purchase them on the secondary market. And so all of those incentives for buying electric vehicles are for people who are rich enough to afford to buy a brand new car. And that's, you know, where are the incentives for people to buy high, you know, used hybrids to reduce the number of cars they own by one because there's more transit in their neighborhood. And they can have their 16-year-old kid take the bus to their their part-time job, right? Like that's how people live in this state, whether they're in Amherst or they are in Boston. And we need policies that meet that lived experience from the next administration. Well, you know, part partly I think that it's almost like we're it, we're finally waking up here. I mean, we talked last year about how uh, Barry Bluestone did that study that said we were all going to be basically going two miles an hour on the on ninety three right. South if we didn't do something about traffic. Charlie Baker, I couldn't understand this. He didn't want to look at congestion uh, pricing, mm-hmm. which lots of places have tried elsewhere and it's worked. I don't mean to be too depressing, um, but now you find out even with all this money from the feds. Uh, is this Boston Globe headline says the money may not go that far for transportation agencies. So, um, like I said, I don't mean to be too depressing, but it doesn't sound like we're at the top of our game here uh, with climate or with transportation. 
We can be. I, so I'm going to start with the like kind of depressing news and then I'll bat it to Jim, who I know will have, you know, be saying the same thing I, I am. But so everyone's talking about this nine, nine billion dollars. They're so excited about this money, but it's over the course of five years. So that's maybe one point seven billion annually, which doesn't take you that far. And it's an increase on what we already get from the federal government annually. So it's basically like getting a pay increase from your boss, right? It's going to help. We can accelerate some key projects with this money. And that's the good news. The, the challenge is that um, we can get more money. And that is where the shift will be if we are competitive <laughs> and the state ponies up some money and we get our ducks in a row to get more money from the feds, right? It's like, how do we take our pay raise and get a bonus on top of that? So I'm, I'm not pessimistic, but I think we have work to do to turn this good news into a true opportunity for the state to get back on track for our climate goals. Yeah, I'm not going to be pessimistic or optimistic. I'm going to be realistic. Okay. Right. A hundred percent of the federal money that we're getting as a result of the infrastructure bill that was enacted in the law can be used for capital projects, right? For building things that can't be used to pay people. And that's the, the missing link here, which is the T chronically has an operating budget deficit. That's the budget that they use to pay people. And unless you can pay people enough money to hire the right resources, like we hired a really capable fellow to run the Green Line Extension Project. We had to pay him a very competitive six-figure salary. He's worth every penny, right? Um, but we don't have enough money to continue to do that. So it's great to have money to build things, but you also need money to pay the talented resources to do the procurement, to, to do the, the project management. That's where we fall short, number one. Number two, we don't, we're, not, we're abandoning the very types of programs that could give us the financing flexibility, like value pricing on roads, like TCI, that don't have a lot of strings attached to them, Right. That, those are hard political conversations. I get it. But there does come a point where you've got to have a re- realistic appreciation of the world we are about to enter into and the reality that you've got to fill these upcoming gaps and the current gaps uh, with funding that's necessary to get the job done. And it, it is – the other one thing I would quickly say, it's not going to be the so-called millionaire's tax. As I understand it, you can't use that money for operating expenses. So – uh, we've got to start thinking more carefully about equitable and stable, sustainable ways to pay for operating budgets in Massachusetts. We're not anywhere close to having that conversation. Operating budgets. That's not very sexy. What is sexy <laughs> are, are the projects that we can talk about. Right, but right, right. As, as all of our grandmothers reminded us, a dollar doesn't go as far as it used to, That's especially right. right now. So with so much competition for what sexy projects should take precedence, Stacey, how do you feel about the prioritization here? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm going to say what I always say, which there are some obvious ones right out the gate. Like the I-90 also change project needs federal funds. Um, I tend to be agnostic on which projects and I'm just much more curious about, I think it's more important for the state to have a clear, transparent mechanism to show us what their priorities are. Right. And I, there are so many worthy projects across the state that, you know, people always want to ask us, okay, which five, what are the top projects? And it's like, there are a hundred. And they're all great. And what is more important is having confident, confidence in our DOT that they have a process to prioritize all these projects, get them out the gate, and get additional federal funding for it. 
Well, so let's bring in the new mayor of Boston, Michelle Wu. I mean, she's just been elected. She'd made a lot of promises. Her opponent says, oh, these are pie in the sky things. You can't mm-hmm. uh, you can't do them. But she is she is, I would call her a climate warrior, assuming she can get some of these things done. Um, we, we'll talk about the bus lanes in a second that that, you know, we, we already have this, these free uh, bus rides and some to be added. But does that matter if the mayor of Boston is somebody that is I mean, she she walloped Asabi George. It was like a two to one mm-hmm. vote. So obviously voters in Boston, they're interested in a lot of her much more. Let's think differently approach. I think Jim yeah, Alvisi. I mean, I think I think Mayor Wu has a has a less a let's think differently approach that is looking ahead. Right. She's the mayor of a city that, like all major cities in the United States, are recovering from the pandemic. Right. That recovery needs to be equitable and inclusive, but it also needs to be mindful of the recovery of the business sector, right? Yeah, you know, Liberty Mutual is probably resilient to pandemics, right? But the small business owner isn't. The, you know, the folks who had the, the sandwich shop that used to thrive because a lot of people were coming to work and now is struggling, right? There's a lot of small business economy that she's going to be worried about as well as a larger economy. Focusing on climate means focusing on sustainable mobility, means focusing on providing more access to people in a sustainable way. All these things are interconnected. So if she wants to be, and she does, I believe, uh, wants to be the mayor of a city that can show inclusive, equitable growth coming out of the pandemic, not exclusive growth for a privileged few, then, yes, caring about climate means caring about reducing emissions which means caring about getting more people to use transit. When the city under former Mayor Janey made the 28 bus free, ridership went up from 60-some percent to 90 percent, right? So what does that tell us about fares? They suppress ridership, right? And just newsflash today, the Merrimack Valley Regional Transit Authority said starting March 1st, they're going fare-free. So Merrimack Valley's going fare-free, Worcester's going fare-free, we're experimenting aggressively in Boston, and I think the mayor immediately had a positive response from adjacent communities like Cambridge to say, let's figure out how we join in with you. It's definitely a conversation we need to begin now. She's begun it. A new governor will confront it, and it's, um, we need to understand that we've got to figure out how to move the tea away from unstable revenue sources and toward more predictable, more stable ways to fund the system. And Stacey, this is a plan that the mayor has for these three bus lines to be fare-free for two years, so essentially a pilot program. But something like this, realistically, can't be undone in two years. So what is she doing? ultimately doing here? Yeah, so, I mean, Mayor Wu has made it very clear that her goal is to do everything in her power to make the entire MBTA system free, and she's using every tool in her toolkit to make that true in the city of Boston, right? So, yeah, do I think that after two years of fare-free transit, um, we're going to go back? No, Um, but I think that that's part of a growing statewide movement to make transit free. And like Jim said, Merrimack Valley went today. Um, Worcester and Lawrence are already there. And I would say early in 2022, we're all going to be sitting here talking about a multi-jurisdictional pilot, right? Is it the 66 that goes next, a bus route that goes through multiple communities? What? So I don't, do I think we're going back? to paying fares? No. I think that there are multiple paths 
forward to covering that revenue gap, because like Jim said, one way or another, that revenue is not going to sustain the system in the long term. And so this is actually, I think free buses are sort of the canary in the coal mine about this bigger sort of statewide transportation funding crisis that we are all going to be confronting together in the next couple of years. And by the way, this doesn't have to be completely on the public sector nickel. Everybody who works for MIT gets free transit, period, right, exactly. unqualified. Right. Maybe mayors, including Mayor Wu, would call on large employers to do the same. What about Partners Healthcare? What about Liberty Mutual? What about Vertex? What about every major law firm in town saying, we're going to follow MIT's lead? We're going to provide our employees with free transit. All of a sudden, the amount of public subsidy that you need for those who don't work in these for large employers becomes much more manageable, right? And is the mechanism for that if, at, say, MIT, is they buy all the employees' T-passes? They basically, or? yeah, they reimburse the, the system for what their, their employees use. And it works like a charm, right? Yeah. And it's a way for the large employers to say, when we talk about sustainability, when we talk about reducing emissions, we've got skin in the game, right? Yeah, because that's what you always hear from people. We always get these emails when we're talking about this. Well, how are you going to – the T's always broke. How are you going to afford anything, fixing anything in the T if we take away the fare? So what's your answer, Stacey? Yeah, so a couple of things. One, I would just like to note that we already have a good model for entities outside of the system paying into the system. Municipalities pay into the system every year. So Boston, Cambridge, and Brookline alone – loans spend $100 million sending money to the T every year because their communities get a benefit from it. So I would echo, there's a good case to be made that business, the business community should be paying their fair share too, because they get a benefit from a good, robust system. And then again, there are things that we could do. For example, 20% of the T's operating budget goes directly to paying the debt on the capital side. So we could find an, a, di- a different revenue source for that capital debt to sustain it and get 20% of the budget back. There are a variety of progressive and regressive revenue um, options on the table, some user fees, TNC fees that can pa- easily patch together the lost fares from the regional transit authorities and the MBTA. The, not, the issue is not, are there options? The issue is, which ones and how do we put the package together? As we also talk about jurisdictional issues, how are we going to get from Boston all the way out to Pittsfield and beyond? Well, <laughs> who's who's uh, going to make that happen? I think um, – so let's talk about East-West Rail. Um, there's been a view among many people, myself included, that we should have an in, what's called, what we call an inland corridor route to New York City that would take you from Boston to Springfield and then down Connecticut. Uh, there is money to, to, to use for that. Now, the, the right-of-way between Worcester and Springfield is not owned by the state. It's owned by CSX. When I was Secretary of Transportation, we actually bought the, uh, the line from, from Boston into Worcester. The first step the state needs to do to make that a reality, east-west rail reality, you get to buy the right-of-way. Why is that important? It's important because who controls the right-of-way controls who gets priority on the line whether it's freight or passenger. That's step one. Um, step two is to figure out the geometry of the tracks and to make it a system that actually functions from a service reliability perspective. Now, going from Springfield to Pittsfield, that's a little bit of a heavier lift. And I have a, a lot of affection for Berkshire County, uh, but I think people need to be realistic in terms of how quickly you can get that piece of it to happen, Right. Uh, I'm not saying it should be taken off the table, but let's let's do achievable things first. 
And the first step in getting East-West Rail to be a reality is to use uh, some money to pay for the right-of-way, right? I, I think CSX would love to have that conversation. They're less interested in owning right-of-way than they are in their own activities in terms of how they move the freight around. Well, Stacey, this is to be continued because we are out of time. But next time, we'll talk about, and, and North-South, my hometown, Fall River, they've been begging down there for years. <laughs> <laughs> it still hasn't happened. Thank you very much, Jim Aloisi and, and Stacy, for coming in. See you later. Thanks. See you later. Thank Bye. you both. Stacy Thompson is executive director of Livable Streets. Jim Aloisi is a former transportation secretary and a lecturer of transportation policy and planning at MIT's Department of Urban Studies and Planning. Well, coming up, Dr. Virginia Sinnett-Stutzman from MSPCA Angel Medical Center is here for another edition of Ask the Veterinarian. That's next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy, who has a day off, and we'll be back tomorrow. And joining us now, and I'm so happy she is, to talk through pet safety during the holidays and take your calls at 877-301-8970. On all things pet and pandemic-related is Dr. Virginia Sinnott-Stutzman. She's a vet at MSPCA's Angel Animal Medical Center. Hello, Dr. Sinnott-Stutzman. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I always love coming. Yeah, well, we love having you, too, because we're all big fans of pets here yes, in Studio, studio 3. Let me give the number and the email again. The number to call uh, the doctor is 877-301-8970. You can email us at bpr at wgbh.org or tweet us at Boss Public Radio. Uh, Dr. Stussman, Senator Stussman will be with us until about one. 40. So get your calls in about pet care. Okay, doctor, I have one. You ready? Sure. Uh, these are articles that we stole ideas from, of course. That's what I do is read <laughs> articles and steal their <laughs> ideas. Can people give their pets COVID and can pets give it to their owners? So that is a great question that there's been a lot of good research recently looking at. Um, The biggest issue uh, when it comes to COVID is actually us giving it to our pets. Um, And if if we're thinking about the common pets that people, you know, keep in their homes, cats and ferrets are probably the most susceptible, um, which is in some ways kind of good luck because cats and ferrets tend to live in the home and not so much travel outside the home. So the chances of them giving it back to a human being would be low. But if there is a species that, you know, of concern, it would be, you know, cats and ferrets in terms of the pet population. Um, as far as like, do they get sick and are they going to die from it? Seems like very, um, very low um, chances. There was just a recent study in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association that um, looked uh, at, you know, many, many cases where COVID was suspected and identified, um, you know, just a, a couple, a handful of cases where it may have contributed to or caused a pet's death. So probably not a high risk for our pets. It's more about 
the epidemiology of transmission. You know, parrots kind of surprised me. You think of parrots are mostly, I guess people take oh, them out. Oh, sorry, and carry ferrets. Them. Oh, ferrets. ferrets. I thought you said weasel. parrots. Yeah. Oh. No, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So it's not dogs. It's cats and ferrets. No. Okay, good. Dogs can, yep. Dogs can probably get the virus, but they, they haven't really been shown to pass it along very well. Cats and ferrets, as well as mink who are related to ferrets, have been shown to pass it along amongst each other. So that's where we get worried. And for owners, yeah, who are worried, is there a pet vaccine that they should be anticipating or that's even plausible? Yeah, well, um, it's probably not a high priority because we're not thinking that animals are going to be a big um, spreader. Like if dogs were um, a large spreader of, of the virus, we might be more worried because of dog parks and doggy daycares and and how much dogs socialize outside the hospital. Um, but it actually, um, Pfizer, I believe, was working on a vaccine and then found that it was just not a high priority because of the need for a human vaccine and the fact that it causes very little significant disease in relatively healthy animals. Um, even animals with a little, you know, kind of comorbid disease like a cat with asthma are, less, are not likely to die from it. They need to have a lot going on for them to die from it. And so until we see dogs and cats being likely spreaders to humans or dogs and cats dying in masses, it's probably not going to happen. We're talking with Dr. Virginia Sinnott-Stutzman. She's a vet at MSPCA's Angel Angel Animal Medical Center, and she's going to be taking your calls and your emails and your questions uh, for about the next 35 minutes. Again, 877-301-8970 is the number, bprwgbh.org is the email, and you can tweet us at Boss Public Radio. Matt from Salem is the first on with uh, Ask the Vet. Hi, Matt. Thanks for calling. Um, hi, how are you? First time, long time. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a call about my cat. We love our cat very much. We got it from a shelter. Um, but it's as it's grown up, it's become like feral. It kills like a lot of animals, lot of animals. and skunks to like rabbit a day all summer long. At least one rabbit. He oh, wow. like dismembers them. I have to clean it up. It's the first thing I do every day. Oh. Is like take all the. Oh no! I know it's horrible. And now well, it's world because of the seasonal change. Yeah, so that's that's a really good question. Um, so that's a cat that's obviously going outside. Um, some cats, you know, we, we always recommend for the longest lifespan of your cat to try to keep them indoors. I realize that ship may have sailed because now, um, you know, your cat's used to going outside. They can be trained to go um, outside. Um, you know, either on a leash, um, you'd have to work with a leash and a harness, which would help prevent killing because they have, um, they, you know, you have control over them. The other thing that helps for some um, prey species is if you put a bell on the collar um, so that, um, it, it, you know, they, they accidentally scare the predator or the prey away and, and don't get to hunt it. Um, so bells might help, may not help so much with a skunk, but definitely your prey species like a squirrel. Um, but there are some disease concerns with interacting with wildlife, specifically things like skunks, raccoons. They, and bats. They are rabies vectors, meaning they can transmit and carry rabies. So you want to make sure if you're letting your cat outside that your pet is up to date on its rabies vaccine. Um, typically, that's yearly to every three years for cats, depending on the type of vaccine. Um, and it's really important because if your pet ever becomes injured, there are processes in terms of quarantines that are much more prolonged and late and you know labor intensive if your pet is not vaccinated. Um, the other thing to consider um, is is there a job your cat can do depending on your property is, you know, if you're, you know, if you have like a, a, a machine shop or a wood shop or a woodshed or, or something that you can kind of feed your cat near or like lure your cat to, 
it can, you know, he can become, or a barn, he can become a hunter for your, you know, you know, you know, a cat for hire on your property to try to avoid killing wildlife that really probably wasn't causing any harm. Um, but it's tough to get an out, outdoor cat as an indoor cat. If you can do that, that's the best. Um, we also want to try to adopt cats that um, are going to live in an indoor space, especially if you're in the city, which I know you're not, you know, not quite there because we do see a lot of vehicular injuries with uh, cats in the city. Matt, uh, thank you for the for the first call. I appreciate it. You also see a lot of signs about missing cats, which I suspect may yes. have a lot to do with coyotes in the neighborhood. But you know, I'm so glad Matt was the first caller because there was this piece in this in the in the Sunday Globe. I don't know if it was last week or the week before uh, by Linda Rodriguez McRobel, and the headline was "When Pat, Pets Kill," and she talked about how they had this gerbil for her two little kids, seven and ten years old, and they usually kept the gerbil. In a, in a cage in a room with the door closed and the cage closed, but they had to rush out and they forgot to close the door. They closed the cage. And she talks about how the cat sees the moment, went in and killed the gerbil. There she is coming home. She's hyperventilating with a dead gerbil cupped in her hands, trying, as she put it, to shield his little mutilated body from my distraught seven-year-old when both her husband and her having to tell the 10-year-old that the kitty called Pikachu had killed the gerbil. She got a picture of Pikachu, who's a suspicious-looking cat, if you ask me. That was the gerbil. (laughs) Pikachu was the gerbil. (laughs) Oh, Pikachu was the gerbil. Excuse me. The cat looks very suspicious in this picture. It looks like a killer cat if I ever saw one. Very dubious. But exactly. Mean eyes, shark eyes. But in any case, it's a great question. You know, they love their cat, but now the cat has killed the gerbil. And how, what do they do? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, there's two, there's two levels to that. The first level is, um, and, and I think I read that article and she gets to this at the end and I was really impressed by her level of self-reflection, but the level that a, that a veterinarian has to bring to it is, um, you know, we, we have pets that are, um, evolutionarily predators and we have pets that are evolutionarily prey. A cat is undoubtedly a predator. I mean, all cats have the potential, you know, they're, they're, they're born hunters. They evolved to hunt uh, small rodents uh, that live around humans. That's how our coevolution happened. Um, so you, it, it's expected if you have a prey species in your house that your cat will be hunting it. And it's your job as the human to keep them separated. And so I think actually a lot of the emotion involved in that is realizing that there was always that risk, that if you have prey and predator in the same home, there's always a risk that it happened and that it happened, you know, there's some sense of responsibility that we, we allowed it to happen. And I'm not judging. I have a, a homestead with uh, chickens. And I have a dog who I love dearly who wouldn't hurt a fly. Um, well, I guess she would because she <laughs> loves people, but she, she killed a chicken. And it was really hard to get over that. You know, the chicken jumped the fence. It was a very high fence. We didn't think it could get over it. Um, you know, and it was sad, but, but a lot of my emotions when I really sorted it out came from, you know, knowing that that could have happened and not being able to prevent it. And so there's some acceptance of that, that, that we can't give a moral judgment to an animal. They're evolved to hunt if they're predator species and they're evolved to run if they're prey. And those two in the same household don't go together. Yeah. Um, and, and, and your dog still loves you. I mean, they want to please us so badly, but, but they still have 
instincts. Well, you know, it's, it's so interesting because those videos, and I think there's even a show built around this about the animals mm-hmm. that become friends, the duck and the dog that become a friend. And I think a lot of people assume that if they have a gerbil and a cat in a home and the cat has seen the children interact with the gerbil, that they would accept that a gerbil is also a member of the family. They don't assume that the moment you leave, the cat is thinking, I'm so glad they're gone because the meal is <laughs> right. fine for the taking. Exactly. But, but how do you and reconcile you know- what we see in those videos and the shows versus the reality that you just talked about? Such a great question. So absolutely. But why are those videos so popular? Because they're so rare because we've never seen that before. We haven't seen a dog playing with a deer. And so that video is like getting 100,000 hits or a million hits on YouTube. But, But the reality is it's much more common when a deer comes into your yard for your dog to chase it away. And thank, thank goodness they're mostly faster than dogs. So there aren't these like, you know, bloody scenarios that we that we read about in the paper with our, our home predators and prey species. But we have to remember that the Internet is so fun, but it's also usually um, rife with exceptionalism. You know, the duck and the, the goat, you know, they, they probably all get along because of the type of because they're not, you know, they're both prey species. But like to have a predator species and a prey species are like there was a famous series of photos in National Geographic of a polar bear and a dog playing. And that was so famous and, and you know, garnered so much attention because that dog should have been dead. And we have to remember that when we're looking at predator and prey species on social media or online, that, that we're, we're loving it because it just doesn't seem like it should happen. And, and it gives us a warm feeling. Uh, here's a, a good question about neutering a male dog. Uh, the person writes that neutering male dogs here has been the mainstay, but not in Europe. Uh, this emailer says they'd rather not neuter their 11-month-old puppy unless there's a really good reason. I've read problem behaviors won't improve much by the procedure other than unwanted pregnancy. What other problems toward other dogs will intact male dogs cause? I can't wait to hear answer this one because it's from the this... scenes I've seen at the dog park. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, it's interesting also from a medical perspective, neutering is becoming more of a, a, a hazy issue. There's a huge retrospective study that looked at insured dogs, so hundreds of thousands of dogs. And they found that depending on, and it's, it's very complicated to get into, but it's easily Googleable and it's open access, certain breeds like larger breed dogs staying intact prevents orthopedic diseases like um, you know, torn cruciates and hip dysplasia. But, but being intact causes certain diseases that you would never have, like prostatitis, um, um, which is pretty common. So that's infection of the prostate gland. That There's no hormones going to the prostate when you're neutered. Um, and so you don't get infections there. Um, but being neutered is also a little bit, or sorry, being intact is a little protective against prostate cancer. So these are very subtle things. And it's like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dogs that they're looking at. Um, but as far as behavior, absolutely, there are the problem behaviors like aggression may not go away, but roaming. So there is a strong urge when there's a female in heat around or that they can smell that scent. Um, a dog is going to want to wander off. If it's a neutered male, he doesn't have those same instincts. So definitely um, things that could lead to tragedy, like being hit by a car, are going to be reduced um, if you neuter your dog. And then absolutely there's dominance behavior that that impact animals display and if you neuter them before, you know, they really start to get into their full adult personality between like a year and a half and two years. While if you already have some problem behaviors, they may not go away. Problem behaviors that might get worse shouldn't get that much worse. Um, I was just going to ask you, doctor, because I mentioned the dog park when I, before Harry the P, the best dog from C to C, left this mortal right. coil here. We were always at the dog park. And so many times when there'd be an aggressive dog, 
it would be a non-neutered dog who was yep. promptly banished from the dog park because, you know, we don't put up with that kind of stuff in Brooklyn. You know what I'm saying? You're out of here. <laughs> Absolutely. And like the, the behavior that is so natural. I mean, everyone who's had a male dog and maybe even a female dog knows dogs sometimes, let's face it, hump. But that is a really aggressive act. Um, and male intact male dogs do it a lot more. So even if they're not trying to be aggressive, it is sort of a dominant act, you know, jumping on the back of another dog, um, whether they be male or female, um, it's, it's going to get you booted from any dog park because we don't want one dogs have orthopedic issues. I mean, we all have pets now that are living into their, you know, like 12, 13, 14 and teens, um, you know, mid to late teens. You can't just jump on the back of any dog you meet because many of them are geriatric and have orthopedic issues and they're, they're, it's going to trigger aggression. So just the very simple fact that if you want to socialize your dog in a dog park or in a doggy daycare and your dog's intact, realize it's going to hump. And so that is going to make it so that you're probably going to get banished because that behavior just can't be tolerated. Well, let's go back to our callers and go to Sharon calling from Norton. Hi, Sharon. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, hi, Doctor. My issue Hi. is with my my older cat. Um, we lost our Tony cat in August. He had diabetes, and then he had acromegaly. Um, they couldn't regulate it in the end. And since he's gone, she is an old girl. She's 16. He was 15. And since she he's gone, every night she runs upstairs, around two, sometimes 3, sometimes 4 in the morning, and she goes into the bedroom and she howls and cries and cries. Oh. And then I have to I have to get her. I bring her down. I bring her into bed and she calms down. Now my daughter said, uh, she googled it and she said, "Mom, uh, I think she's in mourning." And I and it said in the article that when the pet dies, she should see him, which she couldn't because it was an emergency situation. Mm-hmm. But she saw me put him on the pillow. I wouldn't force him into the carrier. He was too sick. I put him on the pillow and wrapped him in a blanket and took him out of the house. And I don't know, you know, I took her to the vet in October and she said, gee, for her age, she's, she's healthy. She's well. Um, she has thyroid disease, but they're treating it. I don't know if that's the case or not. She's still doing it. And he passed mm-hmm. away in August. So mm-hmm. do I have six months of this morning with her Did you, you know, hear it? yeah pets do mourn um usually it's not with the yowling it's usually more um kind of they're subdued uh you know they have to establish a new routine like in some way shape or form even though i don't pretend to understand the complex sort of internal um you know landscape of a cat's mind um but i can tell you that they have routines that are based around their their pet partners and their their siblings or pet siblings in a home and those routines go away. And that's really disturbing for animals when their routines are interrupted. Um, so often they're more subdued. They often don't eat for a few days. Just like when you adopt a new pet, they, they sometimes don't eat for the first few days. It's kind of like a whole new world for them. And so um, that's what I would expect. I'll be honest with you, that behavior is classic for hyperthyroidism. So I would, you know, maybe nudge your vet or, um, you know, to maybe we check those levels more frequently because yowling in the middle of the night is one of the most common things we see with hyperthyroidism. Um, so it could be that maybe her numbers are okay, but we could do a little better. Um, or maybe she needs her meds tweaked a little bit. Like, you know, if she's getting it once a day, maybe twice a day, that kind of thing. I'm not going to let you talk to your vet about that, but just keep in the back of your mind that while there might be some behavior associated with losing her, her partner, um, that there are truly medical reasons for cats to howl in the middle of the night. And one of them is, is hyperthyroidism. Sharon, thank you very much for the call. We're talking to Dr. Virginia Sinnott-Stutzman. She's a vet from MSPCA's Angel 
Angel Animal Medical Center. Here's a cautionary one. This is from Maureen and Needham. She said, uh, make sure you keep your weed edibles away from your dog. Our yellow lab got into some of my daughters, got into one of my daughter's rooms and had to spend the night in the hospital. He was so stoned. He consumed about 250 milligrams of THC. Yeah. That's a lot. Do you hear about this? You know, labs who eat anything uh, Mm -hmm. attacking the edibles? Marjorie, are you asking we, for a friend? Is that, is that what this was? For a friend. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. My friend wants to know. Uh, we see it a lot. It's probably one of our most common emergencies. Um, you know, in that uh, maybe let's say we see it like between three and six times a day. Um, three and six you know, times during, a day. Whoa. Yeah, especially during the holidays. Wow. Yeah, when people come home and visit family, and they have you know, no one necessarily says, "Oh, I'm bringing weed into the house." You know, like they're they just put it. You know, they just have it. And then dogs are very curious and they like the smell of it. So they go into purses. Um, the other thing is a lot of people throw away like the end of a, a joint or I don't know, empty a bowl. I don't know. But they eat it in the park. That's a lot of the time we see oh. where they ate something off the ground and then they're neurologic. So signs of a dog who's consumed weed is they're wobbly. Um, they often will just drip urine and they'll be easily started, startled. So like you kind of like wave your hand in front of their face and where normally they wouldn't care, they like flinch, like, you know, like you just, you know, threaten them with a sword. Oh. Um, yeah. So they're very, they're very not happy. Um, we, we hospitalized, thank goodness that, that dog definitely would have been hospitalized. 250 milligrams is a ton, but most of the time we don't have to hospitalize them. It's mostly when they're losing consciousness or they can't, um, control, like they, they lose their gag reflex. So we're worried they're going to get pneumonia. Those are the ones we have to keep in the hospital, but it is really, really important to, you know, especially if you're a visitor in someone's house, you know, it's pretty much legal in the state. Just hyper communicate to the, to your visitor that you have it. And, and if they have pets, ask them how you would like them to store it, or if there's a place you can put it Um, because I'll tell you, we, that's a really common story is the dog had, you know, cousins and family and, and they're all, you know, at the house for Thanksgiving or, staying over for Christmas break or whatever. And then somebody gets into somebody's brought into the house stash. Um, obviously if you live, you know, if there's weed in your house all the time, hopefully you've come up with a plan to keep it safe. Um, so most of the time it's not, um, you know, I always have weed in the house. It's just when people are, you know, are visiting or there's an upset, like someone moved in or a roommate moved out or something like that. So definitely keep it in mind because we see it all. The time. Wow. I didn't realize it was such a problem. Yep. I didn't either. All right. Uh, do we have time for another call before we break? Sure. Julie on Cape Cod. Thanks for calling, Julie. Hi. How are you? Great. You're on with the doctor. Uh, thank you. Doctor, I have a rescued um, small wire-haired terrier. She has a chronic ear infection in one more than the other. I have taken her to multiple vets, tried multiple therapies. It's very sick. It's really smelly. It's black. It makes her poor little hair itch. I cannot. I mean, I'll treat it, and then it comes right back. And I'm beside myself. I don't know what to do at this point. I Um, I hear you. They're tough. Ear infections are tough. And the biggest reason they're tough is that um, they are a tip of the iceberg disease. So that ear infection is painful and irritating and immediate. But the real cause of most ear infections is some sort of allergic disease. And so I would urge you, if it's this complicated, to maybe see a veterinary dermatologist, someone boarded in the specialty of dermatology, because most dog okay. ear infections have 
Yeah, have one of the the following underlying diseases. Usually, um, uh, they they have a flea allergy. Even if they're on flea meds, sometimes just even the saliva of one flea can irritate them. A food allergy, so their food is causing inflammation in their body and making them prone to ear infections. Or they have environmental problems. Okay. I've tried Benadryl. I have tried, um, uh, I've tried well, topicals. Well, she gets the yeah. on her yeah. as well. I've tried yeah, getting but the, her food to grain free. Oh, grain free is not going to cut it. So that's another thing. Grain free okay. does not mean allergy free. Um, so I completely understand. Uh, I just want to push you down the right path. So you okay. want, um, obvious, uh, probably, like I said, get with a dermatologist. There's a lot of things you said, I want to help you to do better. So the food thing you want to pick either a limited ingredient diet. So like lamb and wild rice or lamb and potato, uh, or a hydrolyzed diet where the proteins are broken down into such small pieces that the immune system can't see it. And then you want to feed that exclusively for six weeks before we can six to eight weeks before we can prove whether or not allergy is an issue. The other thing is there was just a study that shows Benadryl doesn't work in dogs. So Benadryl is off the team. We've switched over to Zyrtec at Angel. Um, and you can certainly get with your vet for a dose. But um, Benadryl, even though it's OTC or, and over the counter and very easy to get, so is Zyrtec. Um, you just want to make sure there's no other ingredient besides cetirizine. We don't want any of those um, stimulant drugs that are decongestant to be in there. Just the only ingredient is cetirizine. Um, so there's other things you can do. And then bathing weekly to get allergens off the skin. Um, vitamin E supplements and uh, omega-3 fatty acid supplements, all of those things make the body less inflamed. Um, but it's a really complicated disease. It seems simple and people like, you know, joke that oh, I had to take my dog to the vet for an ear infection, but actually ear infections are a very complicated disease um, with the root and allergy. And so if we can get at the actual allergy, like instead of trying to cover it up with, you know, antihistamines, but actually get at the environmental allergy and do allergy shots, um, or if it's food, get our on the right food, this will all hopefully be in the background. And then if the ear is sort of too bad um, and it started to like actually mineralize, um, there are, there are surgeries we can do um, to alleviate the pain of that chronic inflammation. And then she's got the other ear. So we'll, we'll keep treating those allergies to try to save the other ear. Um, And those are all things you're, you're kind of heading towards the specialty medicine side of things with uh, a dermatologist or, um, and possibly a surgeon, but let the dermatologist decide if the ear is end stage. Well, Julie, thank you for the call and, and good luck with your cat. Well, we are taking your calls about pet care with Dr. Virginia Sinnott Stutzman of Angel Animal Medical Center. The conversation continues on 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. If you're just tuning in, we are talking with Dr. Virginia Sinnott Stutzman of Angel Medical Center. You can call us with your questions at 877-301-8970. You can email us at bpr at wgbh.org or tweet us at Boston Public Radio. Uh, Doctor, we have a a tweet from Kristen on Twitter. You ready? Yeah. How much evidence is there that stress can lead to UTIs and cassettes, urinary tract infections, I think? And do things like Fellaway really work to lower feline stress levels? Great question. So the one thing I'm going to just like kind of say here is UTI is urinary tract infection in humans. But what we're dealing with in cats is actually a non-bacteria related problem that is feline interstitial cystitis. So the bladder is getting inflamed. Their bladder is a reflection of their... Um, 
emotional state. Now, there are many things that contribute to this, but very many of the cases we see at Angel have a, an immediate stressor at the time of presentation. So, for example, just moved to a new apartment, just got another cat, um, just went away on vacation and came back. Very common to see this disease. And so there's definitely a stress association. The other thing is um, they see this disease um, in England. It's more common to let your cats outside. And they see this disease less frequently in England because of that. So um, we know that being an indoor-only cat is a little bit of a stressor when they can see the birds outside that window and they want to, you know, they want to get at them. Um, so we there's ways to enrich your indoor environment to give them that that sort of like, you know, that prey kind of experience or that predator prey experience that they aren't getting because they go outside. So lots of toys, cat trees, um, doing uh, they have those windowsill cat beds. And then you can do a stick on bird feeder so they get to, you know, have the interaction with wildlife, um, you know, feel away. It, there's a study that shows it doesn't make a huge difference, but I can tell you that there are owners who anecdotally swear by it. So I always tell people, try it for your cat. And if it works great, and if it doesn't, you know, it may not, um, that's okay. Um, we certainly use it at Angel for cats in the hospital because, you know, they're stressed. So we'll squirt it on a towel and then put it um, on their bed and Feel away is just the um, a, a synthetic hormone that mimics the hormone that um, the mom, the mama cat, the queen uh, produces um, to help identify and like kind of soothe her kittens. So it, it seems like it would make sense that it would be calming. Um, the other one is interacting with water. So cats are desert animals by evolution. So they produce a very concentrated urine. So they get crystals in their urine that can be very irritating, almost like I call it like microscopic Brillo pads, um, oh. which is an immediate, yeah, immediate cringe moment, right? Yeah. So if, <laughs> yeah, right. So if we can, if we can dilute their urine um, by making them drink more. And there's ways to do this with, um, you know, water fountains using ceramic bowls over plastic. Um, you know, uh, I, I grew a bamboo plant um, in a vase and my cat loved drinking the water in the bamboo. Um, so that was how I did it. Um, clam juice. I know that sounds disgusting, but it's available in the tuna section in the grocery store. And, you know, a couple tablespoons full of clam juice as a treat becomes a water treat. So it increases their water intake and it's a little bit salty. So they'll want to drink more afterwards. So anything you can do to get them to drink more water is typically helpful. Um, and I, I tend to recommend people do that when they know that there are stressful events coming, like, um, you know, going on vacation or, uh, you know, hosting Thanksgiving or, you know, having people over. Um, for game night, that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, I do think lowering stress is helpful, but sometimes you can't avoid it. So those are the strategies that I always recommend to, to help those boy cats, you know, make it through the holidays without feeling the Brillo pads. <laughs> All right. We are speaking with Dr. Virginia Sinnott Stutzman of Angel Animal Medical Center, taking your calls and questions. Next on the line is Paula calling from Swansea. Hi, Paula. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. I have um, two dogs with Lyme disease, and uh, we've been getting them tested, and the titers coming back that it's uh, below 80, which the vet says means it's starting to normalize. Mm -hmm. um, my concern is that my four-year-old dog especially isn't as active and appears to be really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, is this a is this a chronic problem now that she'll have to deal with? Um, she went through the doxycycline, mm -hmm. and um, just seems like a little bit like an Eeyore kind of like not. Yeah, you know, at four she she should still have that kind of puppy energy, and she doesn't. 
Thanks for the yeah, question, that, Paula. That's a great question. So Lyme disease, the sort of natural history of Lyme disease in dogs shouldn't leave them with like a chronic fatigue or chronic pain-like syndrome. Typically they get arthritis that, um, that is, that is treatable and goes away with doxycycline. And the reason for that is that the antibodies, that's what those titers are measuring, um, you know, cause immune complexes that irritate the joints. So once we get those antibodies down, the, the discomfort should really go away. There isn't, you know, I'm sure rarely there can be chronic arthropathies, but that's not the expectation. Um, so I would definitely kind of consider looking for an alternate diagnosis. Um, some endocrine diseases show up around that age, like Addison's disease that can make them a little bit lethargic. So worth checking some blood work, maybe arresting cortisol, um, and then a full orthopedic exam by a veterinarian to, um, to check all those joints and feel, feel around to see if there's just one specific bad joint. Dogs who have elbow dysplasia um, sometimes can make it through the early puppy years and the, the one and two years without a lot of lameness, but then really get lame as that arthritis starts to form. So really good to have a full orthopedic exam. And then any dog who's had Lyme, um, we should be checking their urine yearly to look for protein in the urine if they develop protein in the urine. So even if they test positive, but we decide not to treat, if they're getting protein in the urine, we need to treat them even if they're, we decide not to treat because they're asymptomatic. If they're getting protein in the urine, we need to probably treat those dogs because we know they can get um, Lyme, Lyme associated um, nephritis that causes um, a pretty bad um, proteinuria or glomerular nephritis. Paula, thank you very much for the call. By the way, uh, uh, we're talking with Dr. Virginia Sinnott-Stutzman from Angel Animal Medical Center. There is a uh, vaccine for Lyme for, for dogs, but yes. but can they be break, breakthrough cases like we talk about with COVID if uh, a dog is vaccinated or are they pretty pretty foolproof? They can be, they, there can be breakthrough um, vaccine or there can be breakthrough infections with vaccination. Um, but the, the vaccine's kind of interesting in that most of the immunological magic is being done in the tick. So the tick, the tick sucks a little bit of blood and then all it's, it's the, the Lyme protein is being recognized in the tick. And so even if your dog gets bit by a tick, they could still not get Lyme disease because it's been neutralized in the tick before it ever, okay. you know, feeds back. So it's a pretty good vaccine. Um, it's just that the tick burden right now is incredibly high. I mean, we've just been seeing, you know, lots of Lyme or sorry, tick associated diseases, other things like anaplasma, um, not really Ehrlichia so much in this area, but a lot of anaplasma where dogs have just fevers and they, they feel horrible and, um, you know, it's doxycycline responsive. And then I've, I've been picking ticks off my, my pets like crazy just because we've had until recently pretty warm weather. So, uh, Doctor, before we get back to our calls, I just have a quick question. Uh, President Biden just wrapped up a press conference where he was talking about hopefully solving some of the major supply chain issues. Something pet owners are concerned about are empty store shelves for pet food. Is that something that's concerning to you? And what should how should people address that? Absolutely. So this this also um, dovetails nicely with the topic that the previous caller brought up about grain free food. So a lot of the, the supply chain issues are with exotic, um, we call, um, you know, boutique, exotic, or grain-free, kind of the beg diets. There are usually smaller companies that, um, you know, feel very strongly that they've got the formula that's going to make your dog healthy. Um, but a lot of those d- d- um, diets are not actually tested to dogs to make sure that they thrive before they hit the shelves. And so we've seen some issues with those types of diets um, with causing um dilated cardiomyopathy or heart disease in dogs. 
So I really recommend against feeding those types of fancy diets. I know it seems great to buy this diet that's like grain-free and organic and has all those tags that we like to see for food for ourselves. Um, but really the, the best food to feed and the ones that aren't having shortages right now are um, feeds that have a, a label that says AFCO certifies that this food was fed to dogs and they thrived basically. And um, rather than it was nutrient matched to meet the AFCO criteria. And those foods are necessarily large national breed, national brands, because they have to keep a dog population to feed these dogs to, um, or have a dog population that they work with to feed these, these feeds to, excuse me. So I think you can kind of obviate the supply chain issue if you stick to like sort of kind of a a level-headed, let's feed a well-established diet. And it can be, you know, a fancy diet. There's a lot of really well-established companies that have, you know, Purina has this really great high-protein diet for cats that's, you know, it's expensive and it's and it's a great diet. Um, it just doesn't have any, like, you know, good home feelings like, you know, mom's chicken pot pie or, you know, chicken soup for the <laughs> yeah. pet lover's soul. But, you know, so we just have to sort of get away from the marketing. And then I think we'll all be okay with um, supply chain and pet health. Jessica from Vermont, you're on with Dr. Virginia Sinet-Stussman from Angel Medical Center. Hi, can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Oh, good. I'm in Vermont, so I cut out periodically. Don't don't hang up on me. Um, so I have a dog. He's um, he's 11. He's a Catahoula. He's in great shape. Um, I've been getting his blood work done, his senior blood panels for the last few years, and there are no flags at all. But he does get these tumors, and I can keep them down with turmeric. I give him some powdered turmeric every day. If I forget, then within about a week, he starts getting them again, and then it takes a few months to make them go away. And those are the, like the fatty ones that move around. But every once in a while, he gets a tumor that I don't recognize. And my question is, um, uh, I can't really afford to go in and pay the office fee as well as the lab fee for a fine needle aspirate every time there's a tumor I don't recognize. And I was wondering what you'd recommend. Well, it's hard to kind of say for sure what's cancer and what's not without that needle biopsy. Um, but in general, we're most worried about tumors that are that that aren't freely movable in the skin. So like if it's like in that first layer of the skin and you can like get your fingers under it when you palpate because they have dogs have such flexible skin, um, it's a little bit less concerning. The one exception is the mast cell tumor, which can look like anything. And so that's the one I can never tell you it is or it isn't that. Um, but what mast cell tumors tend to do is get bigger, you know, with irritation, like touching it or um, just gets bigger some days and then gets smaller. So if they're really changing in size, those are ones that I would recommend be aspirated just to make sure they're not uh, mast cell tumors. Um, but the fatty tumors, a big, you know, like what older dogs get where they just get lumpy, bumpy, those should feel like fat. And we all have some on our body. So you can kind of feel yours and then feel the lump and make sure that it's not, you know, that it's soft like fat and not firm like a like a piece of muscle or um, a piece of bone. But unfortunately, without that fine needle aspirate, I, you know, there's no guaranteed way to say what is worrisome and what is not. Just that anything that's well adhered, anything that's very firm, and anything that's changing size um, should probably get aspirated. And once it's aspirated once, um, you're, you're typically done. Um, the other thing too is a lot of, um, you know, like I know at Angel, when you get cytology of multiple places, if there's a little bit of discount for the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth lump. So we do body mapping. Um, some of our general medicine doctors and their older pets will just body map a dog. They just draw up a little map, aspirate everything. You get a sort of discount because you did all seven lumps at once. And then we can refer to that map when a new lump comes and only deal with what's new. 
you know, Dr. Jessica, thank you for the call. We're almost out of time here, but I just wonder, I know you're not an insurance salesman, but lots of people buy pet insurance. Lots of people don't. Um, Mm -hmm. Does it seem like it's worthwhile from what you've experienced in your practice? Yeah, I I do, but I'm going to tell you my bias because I'm, you know, I try to be scientific and um, my bias is I do emergency work, but it's also the place, you know, where I see people saying, I just can't do it. You know, like I just like, I'm going to euthanize my dog for, for the care that I, that I can't provide because I don't have the money. Yeah. So I believe that catastrophic insurance is the best insurance, meaning ones that cover, maybe it's emergency only, um, but it covers, you know, 80% of what you, um, what, what costs you incur, which can be a huge deal, right? So like, think of your, you know, you have a great Dane who gets bloat where their stomach flips over and they have to have emergency surgery, Yes. At, at, you know, at the drop of a hat. And that's seven, maybe eight thousand dollars. So you know that's a big deal. And so if you only are responsible for eighty percent of that, that's a little bit more sizable chunk of change to uh, a more manageable chunk of change to take out of your monthly budget. And so I really think that's the 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 place for insurance. Insurance for um, annual care, um, I feel like you end up paying a little bit more than you actually get because most of your monthly, you know, or yearly. expenditure uh, you can anticipate, you know, maybe yes. as you get older, yeah. it's going to be three or 400 bucks, but those catastrophic moments, you don't want money to have to play into the decision-making when it's life or death. No, it's true. A friend of mine's dog, we know this person well, her lab ate the husband's underpants. I remember <laughs> yep, it well. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, somebody else I know with a lab that ate the clicker, the TV yeah. clicker. Mm-hmm. So especially the, all that eating of those foreign objects, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. Watches. I mean, the things they'll eat. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And the pot that we found Slippers. out. So, Oof, yeah. Barry, make sure you keep your marijuana away from the poor dog. Hey, doctor, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, I'd love coming. Thank you so much Good. for having me. Well, we'll talk to you again soon then. Great. Thank you. We appreciate all the counsel. Dr. Virginia Sinnott-Stutzman is a veterinarian at MSM, sorry, MSPCA Angel Animal Medical Center. Up next, we'll return to the breaking news of the day. The Governor Charlie Baker will not run for re-election. In 2022, we'll take your calls on Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy, who will be back tomorrow. We're going to end the show by opening the lines again to hear your thoughts on this breaking news. Governor Charlie Baker announcing he is not running for re-election, which would have made history, I think, if be the uh, first person ever to go three terms. As three the consecutive terms, yeah. Consecutive terms, absolutely right. So uh, this opens the race wide for Democrats. Uh, Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz has already declared. Former State Senator Ben Downing has declared. So has Danielle Allen, who is a professor at Harvard University. And then, of course, there's been a lot of talk about uh, Attorney General Moore Healy, who's very popular in the state of Massachusetts. She's another Democrat who might be running. Now, Jim is not here today, but Jim, as he's done every time the governor has come, has endlessly grilled the governor about his plans to run for re-election. I believe he started that right after the governor was re-elected <laughs> for term two. But we'll just play this in case Jim is listening. Here is part of, of Jim's interrogation of <laughs> Governor Baker when he was here on Monday about his possible re-election. It's coming soon, Jim, I promise. 
And what would that be that's coming soon? The answer. To what is it again? I'm sorry. I'm assuming the question you're interested in knowing about is the same one I get asked pretty much every day. Every day. Which, which is, is what, are, what are the lieutenant governor and my plans for 22? How close are we? I said soon. We said soon last month, too. Yeah. And it's still soon. Yeah. <laughs> Hell. Well, it was sooner than we thought because it was two days later when Governor Baker was making up his mind about whether he's going to run again. So we're taking your calls from the top of the hour and your emails and your tweets, whatever other way you want to get in touch with us. What do you think? Are you disappointed? Did you want Charlie Baker to run for a third term? Are you a fan? He has been uh, almost since the beginning, almost since that massive snowstorm back in 2015 uh, when we were all you know, buried in the freezing cold. He has been one of the most popular governors in the whole state of Massachusetts. It's an interesting thing in Massachusetts because we are largely Democratic state. Charlie Baker's a Republican. We do have a long history of electing Republican governors here. It's my theory is to keep a watch on that. All those Democrats up there in Beacon Hill, you never know what they're going to do when you turn <laughs> around. So, you know, we've had Mitt Romney, we've had Bill Weld, we had Paul Salucci, we've had a lot of Demo- uh, Republicans, rather, as um, governors. They've all been uh, of a similar type. Uh, more social liberal and fiscal conservatives than some of the governors you see in, the other, in these other states. Are you a Democrat who's dying to get one of your candidates uh, in, the, in the governor's office? Moore Healy, as I said before, is a very popular politician here in Massachusetts. Lots of people uh, talk about her running for governor. Uh, so next time she's here, we'll have Jim grill her incessantly about whether or not she's going to run for governor. How do you feel about his term in office? Um, do you think he did a good job? Do you think he did a bad job? Um, what do you think? 877-301-8970 is the number. BPR at WGBH.org is the email. And you can also tweet us at Boss Public Radio. I'm kind of surprised that he announced this. I thought it would be a while longer, actually. Well, and I think this changes the whole dynamic of the, of the, the campaign season, the gubernatorial campaign season coming up in Massachusetts, because I think it probably takes a lot of people by surprise. And of course, they now make their decisions about whether to run, knowing that it's a completely open field. And, you know, maybe even be somewhat of a surprise to Governor Baker, because he certainly took his time, and um, this isn't a pejorative, in a very deliberate, it seemed considered way, uh, in a statement that he released today. He said he took the time to speak with his family over the weekend, obviously all gathered together for the holiday, and decided that, like many people, the pandemic has revealed that this is a time that you want to enjoy your moments, your minutes, your family, your, consider your future, and for myriad reasons, one of which is that he feels like time as governor should be focused on getting the state through the next year which he says could be even more difficult than this last year in terms of coming out of the pandemic. You can't really do that if you're campaigning. And as I was saying earlier in the show, campaigning in and election seasons are very different from when the governor first ran and when he ran from free, for re-election. The, the, the whole tone of this has changed now. You also wonder whether um, uh, his wife, Lauren, might be getting sick of the protests outside the House in Swampscott because there have been a lot of them. That cannot be much fun to look out your front door and see people lining up to say horrible things about your husband. Maury Healy apparently was interviewed on Bluebird TV just before 1 o'clock today and asked, of course, if she was going to run I'll save that for another day, she said, adding that she'll have more to say soon, which is just what Charlie Baker said to Jim on Monday. (laughs) And it turns out soon was today. But according to Maura Healy, today is about acknowledging and appreciating the service of Governor Charlie Baker. And one last thing before we get to the calls. Um, 
I and, and Jim both asked lots of times, uh, Maura Healy, when she was with us, you know, when Baker did something that was controversial, the Holyoke Soldiers' Homes, that wasn't just controversial, it ended up being a terrible tragedy where 76 veterans died of COVID early on in the pandemic. And there was a lot of criticism for the way the governor handled that. She didn't take the bait. She was not quick to go after um, uh, Charlie Baker. I don't know what that's about, but I just thought it was interesting because she's a Democrat. He's a Republican. Lots of people talk about her running against him. You thought maybe uh, she would go after him in these moments. And she was, um, she didn't for the most part, um, although she was critical of the way he handled that. She was not, um, didn't sound like somebody who was trying to trash the governor. Anyway, 877-301-8970, bprwgbh.org. Maggie on the road. Thank you for calling. Hi, Maggie. Hi, Jared. Hi, Marjorie. The first thing I want to say based on earlier conversation is 65 is not old. Okay. Older. Especially in the current environment. <laughs> yeah. Do you see that piece in the Globe about all the baby boomers refusing to retire? You know, they won't they won't get they won't give up their power to the next generation. The next generation, let me tell you, is sick of us boomers. I can feel it every day. Get out of the way. <laughs> exactly. But my other question is this is a question for you, is do you think um Charlie Baker is interested in national office? And that maybe that's why He's bowing out of the governor's race. He's never I, – I, I could start – I know less than certainly Marjorie would know, but I, I'm always struck by what Chuck Todd said, which is he wouldn't even go on Meet the Press because he didn't really in, have yeah. any interest in having a national mm-hmm. media platform. Of course, that's something you do if you're trying to establish yourself as a national figure someday. Uh, you know, I'll go back to what I said. We know he just loved doing the job of just – going to work and governing here in Massachusetts. Right. And Maggie, you know, what chance does he have? The, the Republican Party has kind of taken leave of planet Earth. I mean, they're running around the country with this lie about a president, a former President Trump having won the election. Um, there's people vaccination bashing and mask bashing and all these things. I mean, Charlie Baker is a moderate Republican. You know, he's not a right wing like taking leave of planet earth republican you know what i mean so i don't think you'd have much chance you have to be uh in lockstep with president trump right now in the uh former president trump in the republican party so i doubt it i i can't see that he would last five minutes in the republican primary and if he had decided to run he was going to face some of that from jeff deal running here in massachusetts with having a republican opponent uh in his own primary and you know, obviously, that's not a position that you want to have to necessarily deal with being primaried when you're the incumbent. Exactly. Exactly. Well, there was a lot of talk about that, right, with Charlie Baker and Jeff Deal. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Michael and Waylon, thank you for calling. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Um, so I just wanted to say, basically, good. Um, it, Baker would have been really durable, but Massachusetts has had the wrong approach. We need to. Take, keep a close eye on the Democrats in Beacon Hill from the left, <laughs> not from the right. Our problem has been an erosion on the percentage we spend on social services, um, which we have experienced ever since the dissolution of the, the mental hospitals in the 80s, um, which is, you know, it's visible in the homeless crisis we're having in Boston right now. Um a proper, actually strongly progressive governor could shift 
Massachusetts in the right direction actually being a leader, um, which it has not been legislatively for the past 20 years. Um, it has not yeah, been a I don't know. like California. Has. I don't know if I agree with you, Michael. I mean, we weren't, you know, we weren't spending a lot of money on social services under Deval Patrick, and he was a Democrat, and the homeless crisis kind of emerged during the big time, if I'm not mistaken, during the Michael Dukakis administration, didn't it? I mean, those are both Democrats. Michael Dukakis, you would say, was a very progressive Democrat, and uh, Deval Patrick was certainly more progressive than Charlie Baker, so I'm not sure if that's true. Well, it's not just the problem started before those guys. <laughs> I'm not saying, and they weren't particularly okay. Dukakis was, this is true. Yeah. Um, but the problem yeah. he was given was already too large. Um, the momentum was in this direction. I realize that the homeless crisis is more recent than that, but yeah. it is emblematic of the problem we have. Okay. I guess so. Um, but thank you very much for the call. I mean, you know, this is a democratic state. You know, every time we have more Healy on here, we, we get hosannas from beginning to end of, of her appearance. I mean, she's she's very, very popular. I think a lot of people, she would be the first woman. She's a gay woman. I mean, she'd be groundbreaking on many, on, on many, many fronts. She's also, a, which is rather incredible, about five foot four and a great basketball star. <laughs> you know, yes, she is. Jim had her on his TV show once and asked her spontaneously if she could balance a basketball on her finger. Of course she could, right? It was an incredible performance. Yeah. <laughs> she just said, how long do you want me to do this for? Our number is 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. What do you think about Charlie Baker's departure? Are you happy he's leaving as the previous caller was? Uh, Michael from Wayland, are you upset that he's leaving? Did you want him to stay for one more year? One thing we haven't mentioned about uh, Governor Baker is that he basically, as is, is the Globe pointed out, reshaped the Supreme Judicial Court of uh, Massachusetts. He appointed all seven of its justices over his terms, and he was very careful about um, diversity uh, in, in terms of uh, ethnicity and race and different experiences on the court. And um, it's, it's known as a centrist court right now, but it's, it's a much more diverse court uh, than we had before. That was a big deal, people coming from different um, life experiences. He did spend more money on the Department of Social Services. And I've mentioned that before because it's such, it's it's so difficult. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no constituency, as many people point out, for poor kids with a lot of uh, problems up on Beacon Hill. And there hasn't been for years, and it's really hard to get enough money there. It's really hard to get enough social workers. Um, they're having a crisis now. They can't find foster care places for kids. But they're chronically struggling over there, and that was something Baker did, and that was something Baker started doing way, way back when he was working for Bill Weld um, under the previous uh, Republican um, administration, a previous Republican administration. And then, of course, he went to Harvard Pilgrim Health, which uh, I think helped immeasurably probably in the launch of getting through this pandemic and vaccinations underway. Our number is 877-301-8970, by the way, 877-301-8970. And while the vaccinations certainly were botched at the beginning and the crashing websites and, and people frustrated that they couldn't get access, it did turn around. And we now are a leader in the country in terms of vaccinations and and we haven't seen some of the bogged downness of boosters and, and with the, with kids getting vaccinated as well. Uh, it, it's all been more smoothly accomplished. So, you know, he's dealt with that uh, successfully, too. Here's uh, one of our conservative listeners, Art from West Bridgewater, who says, can you say Governor Healy 
Sure you can. She may have stayed out if, if Baker ran without him in it. She has a clear field. Neither Polito nor Deal would stand a chance against her. And what Democrat is going to run against the first female lesbian governor? The last part, I don't know, is, is it such a big deal anymore? I mean, I think we're kind of getting over a lot of our gay stuff. But we also have, you know, uh, Danielle Allen is, is an African-American. She's a black woman. Uh, Sonia Chang Diaz is obviously Latina. Um, I, I don't know that much about Ben Downing, the former state senator. He's obviously a white guy. But, I mean, that, that would be a certainly diverse field of Democrats if all of them stay in it. Maybe Marty Walsh, too. I, did you see that? There was a tweet about Marty Walsh oh, Marty might even Walsh. be interested in Marty returning Walsh. to Massachusetts that and running for governor. is a very interesting idea. He was a very popular mayor when he was here. That's a very interesting idea. He and Baker were pretty chummy, too. Remember when they did that the takeoff of the Adele video years ago? <laughs> which was pretty hilarious, <laughs> off of Adele's hello. Yeah, they, they got off to a very good start yeah. collaborating, beacon yeah. Hill in uh, the city hall. Yeah, and you know, to, to Michael's point before, a lot of Republican governors have done pretty well in Massachusetts. I mean, you may not like Mitt Romney, you may not, you may not like him, um, but Mitt Romney did go after Bill Bulger when he was running UMass the UMass service, UMass Boston. There were a lot of people that were very afraid of Bill Bulger, who was the former state senator of Massachusetts, brother, of course, of Whitey Bulger. And there was a lot reported about his knowing about the whereabouts of Whitey Bulger. People know Whitey Bulger was, uh, you know, kind of the Irish mob of Boston, responsible for many, many, many murders. And a lot of people would not go after uh, Bulger and and Mitt I mean, Romney and succeeded succeeded which and, was a shock yeah, to many. Yeah, I mean you can't be running the state college system uh, when you have that uh, when you're taking the fifth in front of Congress. And people may recall that Billy Bulger took the fifth in front of Congress, which is it's not a good look. Anyway, David from Providence, thank you for calling. Ah, uh, it's uh, let me turn the radio down. It, it's um, great to be on. I. I really enjoy this show whenever I can catch it. Thank you. And particularly enjoy it when it's the two of you. I like the dialogue. I like how you speak to each other. Okay, we won't tell Jim you said that, David. (laughs) We won't tell Jim you said that, but what's your point about Governor Baker? I thought he did a great job. Uh, I'm not a Republican. I I think our success in the state with Republican governors is because it takes a very particular character um, to want to step up and take on that role in such a democratic state. It's someone who knows that there's going to be, it's going to be a big uphill battle, but they have a sense that they have the skills, the experience to succeed. They have the tactics. And they go in there and that's how they operate. And we go, And luckily, fortunately, we are still a very liberal state when it comes to our social policies and all the things that we care about. Um, but having somebody in that post who can come back and say, I, I, I think it's a wonderful idea, but we can make it leaner. Or I yeah. think, you know, there's a better way of looking at it. Rather than being pulled by any other kind of ideological things, I think it's been successful for us. And I have a theory. What's that, David? About this. What's that? Which is that <clears throat> good time for him to leave. Because if there is, and I know this is all hypothetical, if there is in the planning an attempt in some kind of centrist candidate in 2024, that's going to be backed by, you know, 
centrists, both Democrats and Republicans, not a chance of winning, but enough of a chance. <clears throat> Hurry up, David. Vote. We're almost out of time here. Wrap it up. Okay. All right. <laughs> to pose a threat <laughs> to Trump's to Trump's electoral base. And if that happened, David, we got to go. But thank you very much. Thank you very much for the call. I want to point out we're getting a lot of people who email and say they like centrists, whether they're Republicans or Democrats or independents. And they like um, they like having this is you hear this a lot of time in Massachusetts. They like having one executive party in the legislature, the opposite party. That's from John from Garner. But a lot of people stay, say the very, very same thing. And who could work with the other party? It was an exchange. He did. He worked very well with the other party. He got lots, lots of things done. And I'm glad that after the Baker's harangue in the legislature for days, now they finally did the right thing. They're going to have a bill with some of this money we got from the federal government to spend on people who really need the money. What's on your show this Friday night at 8.30? Uh, well, there isn't a show this week because we are off the air for the PBS Pledge Drive. Oh, you're off the air for but the PBS But you can always drive. go to gbh.org slash open studio to catch up on all our latest episodes. We will be back on uh, December 17th if you're keeping track. Well, of the return of Open Studio. Nice little, nice little respite for you there, Jack. We can do your Christmas shopping <laughs> yeah. while you're off the air for a week or so. Okay, well, thank you very, very much for filling in today for Jim Browdy. I'm sure Jim is devastated he was not here for this momentous announcement after badgering the governor for weeks. Thanks a lot about whether he's going to run again, I should say. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow, we're going to have NBC political director and host of Meet the Press, Chuck Todd, with us for a bunch of updates out of D.C., uh, our crew, we want to thank them as well. Aidan Conley, Zoe Matthews, Mackenzie Farkas, and Rebecca Tauber. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker. Jared Bowen, executive arts editor here at GBH. Thanks again for filling in today for Jim. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jared Bowen. Thanks again for listening. Hope you can tune in tomorrow and have a great afternoon.